Um, so how do you normally how do you normally do it again? Remind me, like for the question bucket, how do you normally do it? Um. So I mean, my normal thing is just like, you know, hello and welcome to Ghost Divers. I'm your co-host Neve. I'm joined here by my other co-host Connor. You say it, and then I basically say like. I kind of have it written out here and we're wrapping up our discussion of Neon Genesis Evangelion and answering questions from the question bucket and then just kind of get into it. Okay. I think I got it. All right. Just give me a second to, to get into it. This is a supernatural, true crime podcast where we attempt to solve the most heinous, unsolved crimes throughout history by conducting seances with the dead. Tonight, we are having our special Game Time episode, where we will be playing the board game commonly known as Clue. I am here with my co-host, Neve. And of course, I am Connor. Hi, hi everyone. Welcome, everyone. Um, Let us begin. So when I edit this, do you want me to have the part where I actually intro the podcast, but like kind of nonchalantly? And then I feel like it'll be funnier that way, but. um... Just however you want to do it. (laughs) That's, that's my intro. (laughs) Okay. So for, yeah, for, for your entertainment, um, if you want, I can actually do the real. (laughs) <laughs> the real intro. I was just—I just wanted to make you laugh. Hello and welcome to Ghost Divers. This is an anime podcast on the Export Audio Network. I'm your co-host Neve, and I'm joined here by my other co-host Connor. <laughs> Hello, everyone. <laughs> welcome back. Thanks for joining us. Um, do you want to say what we're doing, Connor? Since you wanted to host this. Yeah, yeah. Um, since my my intro was so rudely uh, cast aside, I'm sorry. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it was quite great. Um, so yeah, today we're going to be wrapping up our discussion of Neon Genesis Evangelion and answering some questions from the question bucket. Uh, we also have a pretty odd pairing of, uh, other media that we're bringing in today. Um, 
do you want to you want to see what you're bringing? Yeah, I so I brought when the pawn. Um, I will read the full title when we get to it, but for right now, I'm just going to say when the pawn by Fiona Apple. And uh, I brought Edward Yang's uh, classic uh, epic, uh, Brader Summer Day. Uh, so, I'll, you know, two things that are yeah. kind of a natural pairing, often put together. I got to say, pieces. so people listening to this might not know if they don't read episode like descriptions for podcasts um, and don't like follow me on Twitter or whatever and like really pay attention. Um, while we were doing Neon Genesis Evangelion, I started another podcast called Ornate Stairwells that is a movie podcast. Um, and in particular, we like are interested in film aesthetics or like the erotics of cinema. Like what, what is the like experiential, like, <laughs> <laughs> my brain is like experiential experience hey, and that's it's, dumb. It's your podcast. Um, I don't know. Yeah. Like what, what is the like aesthetic experience of watching a film it is kind of what we focus on. I mean, we like talk about other things, but that's like one of the key things. Um, and this is an extremely, uh, a movie that we would do on that podcast. So I kind of feel like you're biting my other podcasts, like, um, bit a little bit here, but, mm -hmm. yeah. uh, yeah, it'll still be no. a good it'll, it'll still be a good discussion that's you know um that is a legitimate part of the reason why i chose it um i was like you're, hey, just, you're just upset that you're not on my other podcast <laughs> no no not it's actually it's the complete opposite um i was like hey i'm gonna give a nod to uh ornate stairwells here get a little uh ornate stairwells influence in our question bucket uh discuss this classic film that is like yeah, exactly the type of thing that y'all would talk about <laughs> on ornate stairwells, I feel like. Um, yeah, so yeah, I watched this, because one of the movies that we've done so far is Rebels of the Neon God, which was also a Taiwanese film from literally the next year. Um, and it's also part of like the new Taiwanese cinema, quote unquote. Um, and so then I watched this and I was like, apparently we just need to watch a bunch of new Taiwanese cinema on ornate stairwells. So. Yeah, I think you might, yeah. Um, um yeah this is my this is my loving homage the maybe the first of multiple uh to ornate stairwells so yeah are you actually listening to ornate stairwells i know you like joined the patreon for it but um yeah i've listened to like uh i haven't listened to all of it but i've listened to bits of like various episodes anyway should, should we start on ava uh i don't know i mean I, I don't know if I'm ready to, to go back into Yeah, no, no, let's, let's start on Ava. Yeah. Um, one thing I have here, and then don't, I, like, I don't think we need to spend a ton of time on this, because uh, we also, like, most of the emails that we got in were emails about Evangelion, and so I think we can kind of focus on that. Um, but one thing that I, like, wanted to just bring up almost in this question bucket as we're, like, summarizing things is... One, I think our Evangelion episodes were really good, and it seems like people enjoyed them, which I'm, I'm happy about. Um, also, the like thing that hung over it the entire time is we figured out, I think, early on <laughs> that we had like drastically different opinions of End of Evangelion. Yeah, um, I think we like even before we started podcasting yeah. about it, and. 
we also, I think, like, avoided really talking about End of Evangelion because we wanted to do it, to do it on the podcast. But I think also in the process had, like, misconceptions about why people felt... Like, I feel like you had a thought for a long time that I thought that, like, what was more hopeful about the show ending than the movie ending was that, like... Shinji gives into instrumentality, <laughs> which was not at all like my read of the end of the show or why it was hopeful. Um, but I think like when we were recording the final six episodes of the show episode like that, I was like, oh, this whole time Connor's been reading the end of the show this way that I didn't know. And then thinking that like what I find hopeful about it is like, ah, oh, yeah. And then everyone becomes one. Uh, yeah, I don't know if that's I, even accurate, but I like that was the vibe I got. <laughs> that, yeah, I don't think it was that. Um, I never thought it was that simple, but like, yeah, that's that's pretty much on the mark. That's kind of what I was. Uh, that's a- around what I was like anticipating. Yeah, and I think the so the part that I thought was interesting that like ended up coming out of it, which we talked about a little bit in the end of Evangelion episode, um, but I think like as I'm like putting a bow on this, it, it's the thing that is like stuck with me, which is that I think our read on the show, like our thought about like, what is the, the show and the movie doing? Hmm. What is the message at the end? <laughs> like what is Anno trying to say? Or like, what is the show trying to say? We were like, actually fairly aligned like we both had we both looked at the text and like came away with the same like this is kind of what this text is about and our strong reactions i think actually came down to like what we were personally bringing to the show and that like me coming to evangelion the show and the the movie in particular as someone who like was in a abusive romantic relationship like that the romantic relationships in the show were, I think, something that I was, like, focusing on because I realized while we were having that discussion, I did not even know when we went into the end of Eva discussion, I realized while we were talking that part of the reason why I had been dreading watching an of Evangelion for so long without actually, like, knowing that this is what I was, like, feeling and thinking and also part of why I reacted so strongly was... Until I was talking about with you, I could not, like, name it, and then I figured it out while we were talking, was because I survived an abusive romantic relationship, and the scene at the end of of End of Evangelion, like, literally just triggers me in a way where, like, whenever I see it, I get, like, like, I had, like, physiological responses to that. <laughs> in a way that like is of course just going to then always color how i'm reading that end Hmm. and that end being like so for me as someone who like went through that abuse i then see that and like i cannot read it as anything other than like hateful because what it is showing to me is like the hate that i was experiencing or that's like what it is like reminding me of in this way where I could then understand how you are reading it differently. And yet like it is impossible for me as a person who survived that. And then also like transitioned and came to different understandings of like 
this i do think the show for me has this like bioessentialist view of the division between the sexes that as like a trans person just like i know to not be true and that is also like wrapped up in that ending as well and so when i see like the end of the end of evangelion um like i it's like for me i cannot accept that it is hopeful because accepting that it is hopeful is like for me like is like repellent for me because i cannot accept that like if it's i stayed my abuser it would like have made my life better like it only would have made my life worse and so i can't see like that relationship as anything that would be hopeful um because of like how that relationship ends especially like how it's depicted throughout the the movie um it's just like very difficult for me to see the relationship between asuka and shinji as one that could like ever be healthy as someone who escaped from like a largely verbally and emotionally abusive relationship um and that's like a lot of the the like pain or abuse that they cause each other so <laughs> um yeah like that and it is and i think for you like my read and i don't want to put words into your mouth here but was that like you were more focused because of your own family history and and your like experiences you are more focused on like the cycles of generational abuse of like parents of like gendo to shinji and so for you it's like important to see hope that like shinji can break out of what gendo was and so you like are Im- you have this impulse to read the ending like within that framework of like gendo and shinji and then like shinji breaking from gendo in that end i think you can correct me here yeah i think um i mean first of all i think like that is uh, a beautiful wrap-up um i think that this i mean not to like pump us up too much but um i think our the conclusion that we came to i i feel very strongly that we've hit on like at least a crux um, of what's happening in Evangelion where like what what you're describing and what we're talking about right now is like very much what is at stake. Um, and so we framed up this conflict like very well. And then of course it is like colored by um, yeah our critical responses, of course, but, um, you know, our personal histories in a big way. Um, and yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm pleased with, uh, the conclusion we came to, cause I was thinking that I was going to, that we were going to have to duke it out over whether or not like being soup was a good thing. Um, <laughs> and we actually ended up being like, yeah, pretty well aligned. Um, anyway, the only thing I would add to what you said is like, I think the the question of generational abuse is, for me, it's secondary to the larger question of, like, how does one move from being an abuser to, or, or not only being an abuser, but maybe just, like, inflicting abuse uh, to, like being able to relate ethically uh, with others. And I think that's something that Evangelion 
is centrally focused on. Um, and I'm not going to go like way too into it because we've already, I've already had like 15 hours to <laughs> make yeah. this case. So it's, you this, know, this is not for us to, to rehash. Right. Our, We're not going to relitigate yeah. it. Um, but that, that's what I think for me is, is the more important, uh, question that is like, that is central to the series. And then it's kind of played out through like, not only Shinji escaping from Gendo, uh, but but also everyone. I think the two like main figures in it are Rei and Shinji. Like their respective yeah. journeys, like out of his orbit, escaping this like this hold and this possibility for reproducing or reproduction of like what Gendo is. Um, and I think that's really the central like focus for me. Um, and what leads me to like my reading, um, but yeah, yeah. I, I I think you like framed it up really beautifully, and uh, you know I think I think we've kind of marked out the stakes, um, or at least one like one way of looking at Evangelion. Um, we've really mapped out like what the stakes and what's going on. Yeah. Um, I might move on to a question. Um, I'm actually going to do it slightly out of the order that I put in our notes because I, I think this follows from what we were just saying. Uh, <laughs> uh, unless you have more that you want to say before I get to a question. <laughs> no, not at all. Um, I think okay. uh, maybe maybe later um, we can touch on like some of this again because I think if we want like both of the things that we brought incidentally um can can be discussed in a way that's like related to these themes um but we'll see how we feel yeah we yeah um definitely i brought when the pawn because of how i was like thinking about high school me and like going through depression and abuse <laughs> so um i it will come up again um but yeah, I'm going to read uh, this question from Zhuo first. Uh, so Zhuo says, Hello, Misato and Connor. I want to congratulate both of you for how good the conversations uh, you had around Evangelion were. It's sad that we had to cancel Connor for liking End of Evangelion. Yeah, uh, one thing I would episode. like to... Con- <laughs> Sorry, yeah. see y'all. Goodbye. Um, yeah, this is, this is the thing that like I kind of knew, I think, even more so than you did going in, which is that most of the people listening to this are like in the broader abnormal mapping XWAR audio like network, you know, overlapping networks, like Discord kind of yeah. space. And that space compared to, I think, a lot of like anime watching spaces is very negative on End of Evangelion. Um, in a way where I knew people w- would generally agree with me more. Um, but I, I still think like in some ways that like gave me a little bit of like, okay, I feel like I have backing to like make this stand because yeah. I think yeah, for the broader Ava, to incite, incite <laughs> people to attack me on the discord. Yeah. Because I, 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 would I say think in did. the broader Ava fandom, people actually probably agree more with you than with me. Like within Ava fandom more broadly, and it is like the smaller microcosm of people who would be listening to our podcast right now. Yeah, you mean the um, entire think... group of people we just summarily dismissed and never engaged with. <laughs> um, and and so it was this thing of like I feel like I'm challenging like 
the general fandom. And then I think it was also fun. And a lot of people listening to it enjoyed that. Like you were mounting an actual defense for end of Evangelion. Whereas a lot of the fandom is just like, Oh yeah, it's good or whatever. This movie like, they weren't proves like, that anime is art. Yeah. Whereas <laughs> like you were, you were like actually breaking down like the, like we got the discursive space of like, actual reads on why end of evangelion is both like good and bad or is like uh hopeful or not hopeful (laughs) in uh, a way that i think like actually did get to the heart of those things rather than it kind of just being like the gut feeling so i i feel good about the conversation that we had (laughs) and it seems like people enjoyed it and i'm glad um anyway i'm going to continue reading Uh, One thing I would like to comment on is that while you were discussing how much the fact that almost every expression of human misunderstanding and failure of connection is related to a gender divide, I started to think about how my view uh, on this is now informed by having uh, having watched Nadia's Secret of the Blue Water. What may both shows be in conversation for me is how a lot of the fights between Asuka Shinji mirrors the misunderstanding of the protagonist of Nadia. But while Evangelion plays this for drama, Nadia both presents it as a romantic comedy, but also uh, actively has what looks like uh, what Anno sees as good parental figures guiding these teens through gender trauma that then leads to them becoming quote-unquote proper adults. Um, In both shows, I feel there is an underlying assumption that loving someone means hating them on some level because you can't fully control or comprehend them um, because they are something that you are not and this connection means always having to stumble on things that you can't enunciate through verbal languages. Yes, for me, Anno is a big acts of service and physical intimacy love languages guy. Um, I don't know if I want to think about that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, One thing for me too, like this, I didn't have quite this read on like Anno, but I I do, I think also see to some degree, like at least Evangelion, I haven't watched not much Nadia. Like I watched a little bit a long time ago. Um, and not all of it. Um, but I, I do think that like Evangelion seems to be a little bit more, I don't know if I fully like, I'm going to come down on this take, but a little bit more of like love, hate relationships are like a, like all relationships are kind of love, hate relationships. Um, which is different than I think how I often think of it, which is that like, for me, there is like tension or things that are scary about loving other people. Um, and it is not like hating them on some level because you can't fully control or comprehend them. It's not like from that perspective, but rather that loving someone means like making yourself open and vulnerable in a way that is very scary because you are now like making your, you're making it extremely easy for someone to hurt you if they want to. Um, and that is a process that like, is terrifying, but is also, like, important for then having, like, these feelings of trust and, like, actually being open and and taking care. I mean, I've talked before on this podcast about, like, why I like pain and and blood and teeth, um, because it is this thing of, like, trusting that someone is going to hurt you only in the ways that you want to be hurt. Um, And, like, for me, the fact that they then still hurt you, like, proves that you are open and vulnerable enough that they can hurt you in lots of different ways, and they're, like, choosing to only do it in this one way that you have like consented to in a way that then like makes me feel extremely trusting and um like validated in the love that I have for that person. So um 
And I like I think that's very different than the way that like Evangelion frames the vulnerability of relationships and hurting each other. Um if that makes sense. I don't know if you have any other thoughts, otherwise I'll just read these questions. Yeah, no, I, I have a couple thoughts on the on on the comment. Um so for me, I think like surprise, surprise, my reading on Ava is a little bit different. Um I think the the statement of like there is an underlying assumption that loving someone means hating them on some level because you can't fully comprehend control or comprehend them. Um, I don't think that is like with respect to my reading of, of what's going on, Ava, I don't think that's too far off the mark, but I think what's going on, Ava is, I think the underlying assumption is that any human relation, like it entails this divide which is a cause of like anxiety and pain um, yeah. and does not necessarily like lead to hate, but hate is what happens like when hate is the result of the failure to cope with this. Um, and that is like what we get in Gendo who hates all difference and wants to eradicate difference and who like for this reason i believe is is like clearly the villain of eva um who like essentially becomes a fascist because he wants to like annihilate all difference because he hates difference itself um and he can't cope with that but i think eva is like trying to figure out a way to is is trying to frame up the necessity of like coping with this um, to get to like, so you don't fall into hate, but you can, can you can achieve love. Um, so I don't think that it's like love and hate are, you know, tied together in this way or um, achieving love means you, you also hate them at the same time. I think for in Ava, it's like, Hate is what is the result of, like, this problem, uh, like, not being coped with. Or, or, you know, hate is the human reaction to, like, not being able to cope with this problem in instances where you can't cope. And that's why we have to. So that's kind of uh, my, that's kind of my response to that. Um, I also don't know if... Uh, just to adopt like the what Anno thinks discourse. I don't know if Anno sees Misato as a good parental figure. Um, I think, uh, I, yeah, I don't, I don't know if the show is uh, endorsing <laughs> what she does with respect to the children. Um, no, but, yeah, uh, I think, I think um, Nadia is like different because the parental figures are good. I think um, oh, I Evangelion, the parental figures are bad. <laughs> That's yeah. the, one of the key differences. Yeah. And yeah. I, I haven't seen Nadia, so I'm sorry I can't like really address the the part of the comment that you wanted to talk about. Um, yeah. But uh, I will watch it and I'll get back to you in a later question bucket when you've forgotten this question and you don't care anymore. Um. 
So the actual questions here, uh, how do you feel about Evangelion as its relationship with the Japanese tradition of confessional novels or eye novels? Um, I don't know how familiar you are with this, Connor. Um, I'm not, unfortunately. <laughs> the So eye novel, like the, the I here is the personal pronoun. Um, and it is basically these are like fictional novels, you know, fictional, but that like pull heavily from the author's life um that are like semi-autobiographical i guess um Mm. or to some degree even autobiographical um i don't know if i like this is one of the the reasons to some degree why i bring up like i know that evangelion is in some ways pulling from anno's like life and experiences um and so that is one of the reasons why like compared to some of the other anime that we talk about where I often don't talk about who created it at all. I think that's one of the reasons why Anno comes up more in discussions of Evangelion beyond just like auteur theory. Um, and also why I felt more comfortable talking about like the ways that I think he, as a person creating this is like, you know, his depression is like a thing that is a, is being talked about in this show um that he was depressed when he was making this show and that is like something that is being talked about in this um but i don't know if i have like a more cohesive take beyond just like some of the stuff that i already said about like you know when i would be bringing up anno and talking about anno as someone like like his life and his experiences and the things that he said informing how i understand the show um if that makes sense yeah i i have nothing to add to the to this question unfortunately um i think i think there's a larger conversation to be had about like this critical mode that you're describing which i think is fair and has a place like in a discussion of eva but at the same time i think has it it has some pitfalls. Um, so it's useful, but I don't think it's like the end all be all. And I, I'm not saying that you treated it as such. Um, but, uh, yeah, we, I think we talked about that a little bit already. So <laughs> we're trying to answer Shrua's question and, uh, maybe we should go to question two. Yeah. Um, the question two here is what is your least favorite piece of Ava merge spinoff and why is it girlfriend of steel? Um, I think mine is actually what well, I talked about it briefly on the podcast, but the uh, I don't own. even remember what <laughs> don't you own a, uh, well, oh. a piece of merch from Ava. Yeah. The, the merch stuff. Um, no, I'm sure there is far worse merch from Ava than cat girl Ray or pajama time. Ray. No, <laughs> those it's... are okay. Yeah. Fair. <laughs> I was reading this question I, as, as favorite, not least favorite. No, yeah, this is least favorite piece of Ava merch oh, or spinoff. Okay. Um, I don't even remember which fucking video game it is, but whichever fucking video game has all the, like, progenitor race uh, lore about, like, this is where the angels came from. Fuck that game. I don't care about lore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think um, mine is probably Pacific Rim. Pacific Rim is a really fun movie to watch. I think it um, 
the tagline being in order to fight monsters we became monsters uh that movie does not deal with that at all (laughs) um that movie is not at all concerned with like what does it mean to become a monster uh it's literally just uh that being a theme that was in Evangelion and then using it as a tagline, which I'm not even doing like as a dig on uh, Del Toro here because I doubt Del Toro or whoever wrote that movie wrote that tagline. That's not how taglines work. But um, <laughs> I mean, it's pretty funny regardless. So, you know, yeah, I give it a pass. I'm just I'm just taking shots at Pacific Rim just because. Um, I saw the first time I saw Pacific Rim was so it was in 3D, which um, can sometimes make me nauseous, but it didn't in this situation. Um, but it, yeah, it was in 3D and it was in an IMAX, so it was just like I one of those huge fucking screens where it's like you're close enough that you literally can't see anything other than the screen when you look like straight ahead. And I went with my friend Carlos, who's like very big into mecha anime and especially like super robot stuff um and his like pure excitement at just seeing like the largest possible that we could find giant robots on a screen like punching stuff and he was just so excited that like i love that movie because of it um it is a very fun movie but i think it's also kind of a stupid movie (laughs) (laughs) no that's fair i don't no i mean i I don't think it has anything interesting to say uh at all about the mecha genre <laughs> well <laughs> maybe all. maybe we're gonna maybe we'll bring it to a question bucket sometime and and uh, talk about it and see what we think yeah um um so i th- i think that answers it yeah those no, are those two d- questions yeah that's definitely a, a good answer to that question um girlfriend of steel also kind of creepy and bad but um Honestly, I just like dating sims, so, like, it being a dating sim wins it a point over lore video game. One out um, of ten. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so, next I'm going to read uh, an email from Jesse. Although, first, before I actually get into this email, um, I was going to do this on, uh, I believe, the 08 MS team question bucket, and just totally forgot because of some of the time in between, um, but... Jesse, like, I forget, I think messaged in our, like, Discord um, to both of us, but, um, so Ina had written in to, uh, I think our, yeah, which, I forget which, yeah, I think it was our first question bucket, um, and said, uh, so Ina, you know, the person who wanted more queer alt comics uh, should definitely or should specifically see if there's a zine library near them. Um, also for online, there's queercartoonists.com. The database doesn't have a great way to browse, but you can at least uh, go to the search and scroll down and see everyone's profile pictures. Um, and I, I haven't actually gone here. My guess is some of the like Often those profile pictures will be the artist drawing themselves. So sometimes you can also get like a little bit more vibe than just a photo. Let me actually go here. I haven't like done the the good search. Um, yeah, so it's like things that these people have drawn, which can also maybe some of these seem to be photos. But my guess is it's like user submitted in a way. Um, and I definitely like when cartoonists draw themselves because it it often gives you like a vibe of their work in general as well. Um, so that that is a thing um and then also i haven't checked out this podcast but um 
Jesse also recommended uh, her friend Kathy's podcast, Drawing a Dialogue, uh, where Kathy and her co-host talk about topics in comics through the lens of pedagogy, queer theory, and scholarship. Um, so that might also be something to check out if someone like wants to look more into queer alt comics. Uh, Jesse is a cartoonist. I think I specifically called her out on that episode. Um, but uh, yeah, so, you know, that those are... This is a like check in <laughs> about that. Jesse, you've um, been called out. Formally called out. <laughs> so, actual email here from Jesse. Uh, this is Jesse from the tabletop game because, yeah, we play tabletop games together. Uh, I finally have a real question to ask. I just listened to the Ava episodes 14 through 20 installment of the podcast, and I'm wondering if Christopher talks about, slash, you have any thoughts about dismemberment, lost limbs, uh, re-objection. Um, I'm not going to read all of this just because it gets like into slight details, but basically a, a family member um, in an industrial accident lost some fingers. And for Jesse, uh, the scary part of it isn't the pain or uh, any of that, but rather like the two moments, the one where the fingers are you and then the next one where they're not you. Um and then says, uh, just thinking about how aggressively often Ava's and Angel's have limbs torn, cut, blown off, um, how the pilots always feel it, how quickly and maybe disturbingly they're able to reattach and regrow. Uh, just having some thoughts. I don't know if you want to talk a little more about objection here, Connor. That's oh, the yeah. one you brought it Absolutely. in. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, yeah, dismemberment is like extremely an objection thing. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. 100%. It, it is. Like this whole thing of the moment where a part of your body is you and then it's like cut off and it's no longer you is abjection. <laughs> yeah, 100%. Um, it's a more extreme version of it than like bodily fluids, which also go from like you to not you. But yeah, um, yeah this is an even more like intense and like breaking down of the body way. For sure. Yeah. And um, I, I can't even remember... It was a little blur when I talked about Christova, so I can't remember all how much I got into this. But like, Christopher's dra- Christopher's drawing a lot on um, Lacan's idea of like the fragmentary body, um, which is a big Lacanian psychoanalytic thing, um, where it's just like um, the reality of your body being like being literally fragmented in these various ways, um, and the way that the mind copes with that in an illusionary way, but that that illusion is like necessary um, as a coping mechanism. Um, but of, of course, this like knowledge of the fragmentary nature of your body can never be, you know, completely erased. So there's this kind of uh, looming anxiety um, that is like a constitutive element of human consciousness. Um, and Christopher's playing with that. Uh, and drawing a lot from that for the idea of abjection where she's kind of talking about how the border of consciousness and the border of your body uh they are permeable and unfixed by necessity as well right so like um if your body was like completely impermeable you would die because you know you can't drink water you can't eat you can't like you know, urinate and so on and so forth. Um, and then, uh, if your consciousness was, um, impermeable, then this gets into a whole, like, um, 
other philosophical thing uh, about like the dialectical nature of consciousness, but um, to what extent can you even constitute your consciousness without traveling through an- another person um, or traveling through something else? Um, so yeah, like a fundamental, um, it's a fundamental necessity that there's this permeability, um, but at the same time, like the permeability is a reminder of dissolution. Um, so like the possibility of the border, like completely dissolving and then yourself just becoming matter, <laughs> um, which is of course like horrifying. And, uh, so yeah, the, um, dismemberment, like Neva's saying is like definitely a huge part of a, a, a cardinal example of, um, something that is, would give rise to abjection, um, or is like imbricated with it somehow. Um, in the, uh, in Powers of Horror, which is the, um, the piece that I probably referred to or drew most of like my analysis from, um, a little bit later on in it, um, Christopher talks about the French writer Céline, um, and analyzes some passages in Céline that are like, just, uh, extremely gory and graphic and deal heavily with like dismemberment and destruction of bodies. Um, and she, uh, refers to Celine as like the writer of the abject, um, for, it's obviously much more complicated than this to the extent that I can't like do a good job of explaining. Um, but yeah, uh, dismemberment is like absolutely, um, you know, uh, imbricated with this and Ava, uh, Ava has a field day with it. Um, just like not only losing the limbs, but then having them like putting them back on or like taking something else's limb and then attaching it to yourself. Um, and then yeah. having it like absorb into your body. Um, you know, and of course, but it's the robot's body. So it's not your body, but it basically is your body because it's like a humanoid arm once it grows back. Um, yeah, it's just and like, you like feel this as your own body, and yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's just like a total embarrassment of riches, uh, as far as the abjection thing. Um, so yeah, uh, thank you for bringing this out. Um, it is, I mean, hopefully, uh, this has been a satisfactory answer, but yeah, it's all over Ava. Um, the dismemberment thing is very spot on. Um, in the interest of time, I'm going to, like, skip some of the parts where people compliment us and us, like, bringing important or interesting things out. Thank you to everyone who has nice words to say. Like, thank you, Jesse. Um, but the other question that she has here, the dumber question, thoughts on Toji's hair color in the show versus manga? Um, in her opinion, red is the better character design choice, even if in the manga that means a medium uh, medium gray screen tone. Uh, he pops better, and it sets him apart from Shinji more. Um, I don't know if you have thoughts here. Um, I I kind of have a hard time seeing Toji uh, with red hair. Um, I, I definitely think you're right that it pops better and sets him apart from Shinji. Um, I think there's like, I'm interested in the fact that Toji and Shinji look kind of the same, <laughs> um, even if it's like yeah. not a compelling design thing. Um, 
I think it has some significance for like Ava stuff. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. Uh, I think you make a good point here. Uh, but I, I think I can live with, with black hair on Toji. Yeah. I think for like, I like red hair Toji, but also red hair Toji suggests something different to me than who Toji is like Toji. And I think both the show and the manga, like him being somewhat similar to Shinji, I think is actually important. Like you're saying, um, whereas like the red hair Toji suggests to me a certain degree of like, especially during this era, um, having him be like having him, you know, do the basketball is kind of like the jock, uh, kid in the class. And then also giving him like this red hair that would suggest dyeing his hair. Um, like at the time that would suggest this like delinquency that I don't think is who Toji is. Um, but I like imagining a world where Toji is kind of a, just high a better brat. <laughs> well, not just like being more of a brat, but I mean, I love brats, but I'm specifically just talking about like that, like dyed hair look, like the red hair look evokes a little bit more for me as someone who's familiar with reading a lot of manga and especially manga that like includes delinquents because I like Yakuza stuff as well. Um, it suggests this like level of like, oh, I'm like a punk, right? Um, right. Like red hair Toji. <laughs> like is is a little bit more Cromartie high school toji um in a way that i just enjoy thinking about even if i don't know if it actually fits for like who toji is in the show um or the manga and like yeah like it kind of fits for early toji like if you just read the first few chapters of evangelion where especially the manga where it's just like oh like this is like kind of funny it's a little bit like you know there's a vibe to the very beginning of both the show and the manga, but the manga especially, um, that like leans a little bit more into like, oh, here's like these high school kids, blah, 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 where like, here's just like this rough and tumble punk who's going to like punch Shinji and be all mean to him and then obviously like become his friend as it goes on. Um, it's like suggesting that in a way that neither the show or the manga ends up doing. Um, and in the manga, I could see it being more of a, um, like, a feint, especially because the manga started before the show. So at the very beginning, you just read it and you'd be like, oh, this is, like, what this is. It's just, like, shounen manga. <laughs> In a way that it, like, does not, you know, by the time that it was finishing being published it was no longer being published in a shonen magazine it was being published in um a sign-in magazine which is like adult men so <laughs> um yeah so like i just visually and in terms of what it suggests i love red hair toji um for who toji is in the show and his like significance for the story overall i think i agree with you uh dark hair like you know same hair color as uh, Shinji probably actually does work more, but um, that that's my read on Toji's hair. Love Toji. <laughs> <laughs> um, then final email here is from Ina. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to read a little bit of this, but also skip some of what she wrote in uh, just because again, I, I really love all the praise year. that people send, but um, 
I'm not going to just read people praising us multiple times on this podcast. Uh, so, titleless email, Ina Gender Sis Gavangelian. Um, I'm just going to read the beginning here of, hey, what's up, Ghost Divers? This is Ina, big fan, big fan. I've become a girl since the last question bucket. Laugh my ass off. Damn, a lot happens in three months, huh? <laughs> yeah, a lot does happen in three months. Um, uh, so anyway, skipping a bunch of the... Again, thank you for all of the praise. Uh, here are the shitpost questions that Ina wrote in. Uh, number one, Connor, I'm sorry if this is nonsense to you. Nia, I trust you will. Uh, I trust you to please explain. <laughs> you're, you're forgiven. If Ava, <laughs> if Ava characters were to create one of those Twitter memes where you post three themed images that correspond to your major zodiac signs, what subject matter would each character choose for their memes? Um, do you know what this is? Is this nonsense to you, or do you understand what this is talking about? Yeah, it's no, it's nonsense. Okay, this is to, like to revealing me. how much you've yeah how much you've been following my Twitter account lately. Um, so a really common meme right now is someone will do like basically the the premise of it. It's it will usually be like your your three star signs like the astrology zodiac signs so your sun moon and rising are like the big three um that exist in astrology although there's like ones for different planets so sometimes people will do one that will like maybe it'll include venus which is the one that re- like represents like how you are in love relationships or whatever um but and so it'll be like you go through the thread that they do so they'll do like here's aries and then it's like the three you know aries sun aries moon aries rising here's and it's like all 12 zodiacs and so then you go through and like i like i will just say here i am aries sun gemini moon and uh libra rising and so I would go find those images in the thread that the person had made, and then I would, like, quote, tweet the thread and do those three images. And there's usually some theme of it. So, like, there's one that was, like, Simpson memes. So it's, like, and the the zodiac signs and, like, what they represent are kind of tied to, like, the memes. Um, there's one that's, like, build your outfit. Um, like, l- let me even just, like, see if I can find some of the ones that I've done. Um, just I'm, to like I'm give you an example right now. Yeah. Um, this would be on my locked where where I've been doing these. Okay. Um, the other thing is that I just tweet a lot, so there's yeah, some, there's really some scrolling to, to be done to to find a specific tweet in here. Yeah. So like, here's one that was the three biggest Simpsons memes. Um, and so Aries son is Homer laying in bed looking angry, like with the like blanket pulled up to his nose um gemini moon is the lisa holding out a mug and coffee's being poured into it and her like eyelids are half closed um and then libra rising is lisa in like a little black dress um what are let me find some other examples because i feel like having a few of these are like like a few different examples again outfit is one that i've seen um but so and Ina specifically asking like what is the what I, i'm cheating i'm i'm trying to look it up on a nope i can't i can't i tried to google it it's that's not gonna work sorry um, keep going yeah <laughs> so like the out the outfit one um 
I did as a joke, um, like for the shirt, I just did the MILF shirt that I, you know, have made and is on grapevine.is. Um, <laughs> because of course I'm just going to promo that. Um, but like, let me, let me look at like, I'm just like scrolling. I, God, I tweet a lot. I wasn't I'm like trying to vamp for time and this is, I tweet a lot. Um, Here's one where it is, um, like, fanfic tropes, and so mine are Trapped Together, Death Fic, and Hurt Comfort. Um, so, like, it can really be lots of different themes, but it's just, like, what would be, you know, here's one that was albums, and so Airy Sun is When the Pawn, um, Gemini Moon is Soviet Kitsch by Regina Spector, uh, Libra Rising was the uh, self-titled um, St. Vincent. And then uh, Taurus Venus was Lush by Mitski. And I think it was like um, basically female all artist albums. So a whole point here being yeah, like it is one of these Twitter memes where there's a large like you need a large thing to be able to pull from of like images but would be like what theme would they choose for this meme okay um, okay in the maybe, maybe i don't know because there are a number one. of characters yeah maybe you start <laughs> yeah. off here and, and I'll, I'll, <laughs> I'll see if i can figure it out as we go um shinji like we so often see shinji listening to his like cassette player um and so it's definitely what music do we think that shinji's listening to i I do like you saying it's city pop i like imagining shinji listening to like very happy like um that like kind of makes sense so yeah i do like shinji being like city pop songs or city pop albums i feel like tracks is the thing to do with like city pops like singles you know yeah, I, like I, someone's I, really happy that they got plastic love. Um, I'm like really hoping that I'm gonna get Mayonaka no Door, um, my favorite city pop track. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think so. I, I can definitely see uh, Shinji like listening to like you know Cassiopeia or whatever, and just being like, I I need this like happy soundscape to clear my mind while I just walk around the city <laughs> randomly. Um, yeah. And then yeah. making a Zodiac meme about it. Um, yeah. Yeah, that too. Then uh, Asuka. I feel like Asuka would either be outfit or it would be video games. Um, okay. Yeah. I could see that. Um, is there one that's just like more hostile that you can think of? Um. Oh, I know what it would be. <laughs> it's not It's not just, like, outfit or, like, video games, but it is, like, one where... One, it's, like, fairly convoluted, but it's, like, specifically, like, setting up what is your, like, gamer-streamer, like, persona. And so, like... The sun might be like, you know, your sun sign might be 
here is like your basic shtick and it you know would go through like some of the different stuff of like only plays old games or like just does a bunch of shooters or whatever um like it'd be like kind of like what's like the like genre or like your like base persona yeah only um, talks about old anime yeah <laughs> um then like the the moon sign might be like some of the like more general tropes that happen around streamers. So like one of them might be like, Oh, you're a VTuber. One of them might be like, uh, like Twitch streamer with like a regular schedule. One of them is like, you have a Twitch account. You also have like a YouTube account. You kind of just like stream to different stuff whenever you feel like it. Um, it's like different ways that people like, you know, put out that the content that they're doing or whatever um and then i think the the rising would be what would be the hated uh the heated gamer moment that gets you canceled <laughs> and that's the part where it like becomes more aggressive <laughs> yeah yeah that um, makes sense. yeah um then uh ray um <laughs> i think ray is uh what is the different medications that you take <laughs> yeah oh yeah um misato um when you were just when you were doing oscars i was like oscars not a vtuber misato is a vtuber (laughs) i think um i think misato's like uh astrology sign meme here is it is it one definitely definitely includes venus because like romance is here what, what did you suggest i was gonna say beer brands but so Misada i think would, would have some like really self-deprecating like joke for the venus one i feel like yeah i don't think it is just beer brands i think it's like you're like putting together your like weekend plan and so one of them is like, what outfit are you wearing? Um, you know, one of them is like, what are you drinking? Which is mostly just different beers. Um, also, like her just assuming that everyone's weekend plan involves drinking lots is like <laughs> coded into the way that this is being constructed. Um, I don't know what all of them would be, but I, I do think it's like specifically around this like nightlife kind of aspect. And then one of them might be. Like, maybe the Venus is, like, the awkward hookup that you have. Like, what is that awkward hookup? Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe the the rising is, like, uh, what is it that you have to do the next day when you, like, wake up hungover? And <laughs> to she's get the, like, like, tension. Yeah. Yeah, and she's, like, being a fucking boss at work. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Aries rising, like, girl <laughs> bossing at work. <laughs> Yeah, stopping a nuclear explosion. Yeah. <laughs> um, who who else do we want to do? Gendo um, just doesn't do this. Gendo's just like, what the fuck is this? Yeah, no, we can skip Gendo. In 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 the spirit of question number three, <laughs> I think uh-huh. we can skip Gendo in question number one. Um, I'm trying to think if there's any other good people to to touch on here. Um, like we got the three main children. Yeah, I, um, I I think you got it honestly. Um, and <laughs> Kokoru, I'm only... 
Quaru. Um, Quaru also definitely has Venus. The other three are like, like there's a weird tension where most of them are like highly religious. Like one of them is just like, what's your favorite Bible passage? <laughs> Or, like, what's, like, the Bible passage that matches with you? Um, And then Venus is just, like, weird kink shit. (laughs) Yeah. That's Guaro to me. Yeah. Um, And then, yeah, the final one is, like, he's, like, at some mega church, and he's, like, on stage with his Christian rock band. He's (laughs) the lead singer and guitarist, and he's playing at a mega church. That's the, that's, like, the last one. Of the three. Yeah. Um, do we want to do a quick check-in on Kissing the Homies Goodnight? Uh, Ina didn't write in about this, but... I was thinking about we that wanna... earlier today, actually. Yeah. I was like, yeah. Do we want to do we wanna talk about out. who we think kisses the homies goodnight? Yeah. Um, um, yeah, let's do Shinji, it. Shinji, the whole plot of Evangelion is Shinji trying to learn to kiss the homies goodnight. Yes. I don't know if he necessarily gets there by the end of the show, but um, definitely takes steps towards being able to kiss the homies goodnight. Yeah, it's like Shinji's, like, wants to kiss the homies goodnight, and then, like, the trauma of just, like, everything, like, he's told that he shouldn't, and then also, like, the world tells him he shouldn't, and then he is just, like, really messed up about it. And now he's trying to, like, mm-hmm. figure out how to, like, kiss the homies goodnight after that. Yeah. I do still think I agree with my assessment that um, Ray has an extremely, extremely limited, and it, it's only towards the end of the series, really, um, extremely, extremely limited, like, scope of who is and isn't the homies. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, there's like only like one or two people who are homies to Ray, but does kiss those homies goodnight. I think yeah, at the I mean, end. Shinji and I mean, who else would you say? Um, I don't know if I would put anyone else in there. Yeah, I think it's, it's mainly Shinji. Shinji here. Yeah. Um, Misato extremely kisses the homies goodnight. Um, Asuka kisses the homies goodnight and is doing it because she th- she's like trying to be cool and thinks that being cool is kissing the homies goodnight. Okay. Yeah. That's Oscar's like, I'll kiss you goodnight. And then just like, yeah, like you idiot. Like, look at like, yeah, I bet you wanted to be kissed. Didn't you? Yeah. Like you idiot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Baka. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, that's, that's kind of my feeling on Oscar. Yeah. Kaji still definitely um, too aggressively kisses the homies goodnight. Yeah. Yeah, I have to agree. Um, yeah. Ritsuko. Um, I, I, I say Misato and that's it. I think that Ritsuko does not kiss the homies goodnight, but when Misato is kissing the homies goodnight, which she does every single night, um, Misato is very adamant that like she needs to kiss the homies goodnight. Mm-hmm. Um, Ritsuko kisses Misato during that. Mm, and yeah. I think kind of puts up a certain amount of like, oh, you do this every night, so like I'm gonna I'm gonna acquiesce, but yeah, I'm just um, like really I'm just, does want to kiss Misato. I'm just trying to like sneak this one in. It's like, yeah, everyone's kissing everyone. Like it's just no yeah. one's gonna notice if I 
You know, it's gonna think this is weird. Like, I can just sneak this one in there. Mm-hmm. Um, um, Gendo, absolutely not. Um, yeah. Question three again. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get in the there, spirit but... of question three. Moving, moving past Gendo. Um, who else? Who are we missing? Um, Toji, Kensuke, and Toji. Yeah. Um, Kensuke, yeah. I think yeah, so. Kensuke definitely. Um, Toji doesn't at first, but then warms up to it. Yeah, I think Kensuke is a little like he's maybe like a little creepy when he kisses like Asuka. Um, yeah, or maybe a lot creepy, but he definitely kisses the enemies goodnight. Um. Koru kisses the homies goodnight. Yeah, um, for sure. Yeah, I think I think that's the main ones to come. Yeah, we we hit the main marks. Yeah, I, I feel bad. Uh, well, this this one I can actually contribute to. I made you handle all of like question one by yourself. So, <laughs> <laughs> you know, we'll do as many characters as you want. Yeah. Um, number two, Asuka is obviously a gamer, but one, what game is she playing in the episode when she's depressed at uh, Hikari's house? I was almost going to say Hikaru because I'm so used to recording Reg Earth right now. And two, no, what at, game she's slash at genre? Uh, dog's house. Um, yeah. <laughs> two, what games slash genre would you be known for as a famous streamer in 2021? And three, what flavor of heated gamer moment would she have uh, that would get her in trouble? Um, this is like tying into my raid on her, her Zodiac memes, but I think it is true to Asuka to some degree. So um, my... So I'm I'm only jumping out in front of you because I'm excited to actually have an answer. <laughs> yeah, go. Um, I think the game she's playing is some sort of like FPS. I think Oscar just plays like. I think she's like super into Call of Duty and like talking shit to people in Call of Duty. Like actually, like the main thing she likes about it, the main reason that she's gotten good at it is because. She just like likes to go in there and just fuck people up, and then just like yeah. ward it over them. Um, I agree. This I agree with this for like what game slash genre would she be known for as a famous streamer in twenty twenty one? I don't think it's what she's playing when she's depressed at Hikari's house, and that's because I can't conceive of Evangelion <laughs> as being a timeline where video games progress to like FPSs in this way being a thing. <laughs> Yeah. Um Everyone's I think just she's like, playing, no, no, no. like we we're like we don't want it we, we're not interested in this actually. Well like being attacked half by the world's population died. Um like I think like the second impact changes part of this is just like Shinji's still listening to fucking cassettes, basically. Yeah. <laughs> so like I can't I can't think of like Asuka play like in that scene in the anime, like as the abstract, like let's think about Asuka as a streamer now. I can think of like yeah, Asuka's definitely playing FPSs. In that actual scene that happens in the anime of Asuka playing a game while she's depressed at Hikari's house, um, it's like Harvest it, Moon sixty four. Yeah, it's it's like <laughs> my thought goes to Dragon Quest first. Like it's like. Because it's still this, like, oh, I am, like, demonstrating some sort of, like, mastery, but it is also just, like, oh, you just, like, level up. <laughs> yeah. Right? Um, And it is just, like, 
still kind of cute, but in this, like, that's also why it's, like, not Final Fantasy. It is Dragon Quest for me. Um, yeah, so I think she's playing Dragon Quest when she's depressed in Hikari's house. That's my thing. But I definitely agree with you. Uh, as a streamer in 2021, uh, Asuka is playing an FPS and is just, like, shouting about how great she is into the mic at, like, 14-year-old. I mean, I guess she's also 14 or whatever, but... Yeah. Um, and, then, and then what flavor of heated gamer moment? Um, I don't, I don't actually, I don't think that Asuka would be like set a slur on, on camera. I don't think that's Asuka here. Um, yeah, I, I have an answer to this question that is like horrible and I want to, I'm going to qualify it by saying that like, since I know very little about the internet, I only, like, this is the only, like, gamer streamer controversy that I have ever heard of, and that's why it comes to mind. Um, but uh, I could see, like, maybe, you know, years down the road, like an older Asuka um, having, like, the gamer girl bathwater thing, <laughs> if you know what I'm talking about. Yes, yes. Yeah. Um... I feel like she would have multiple things. Like, one of them is that. Is, like, her selling her own bath water. Um, and it's, like, maybe a joke, or, like, maybe maybe not. And, like, no yeah. really. Everyone just, like, freaks out about it. I think she also has... Uh, there's a part where people get, like... I'm sure her fans get upset at her because she gets, like... Really, 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 really angry about people who are like watching the stream and then trying to join, like doing like this stream sniping where they like try and join her match specifically and like watch along and try and figure out where she is. And she just gets like so angry about it that she's just like throwing a tantrum on camera. And like a lot of fans are just like, this was a little too intense. Um, like, yeah, stream sniping is like annoying, but um, the degree to which like you got mad that like people were cheating watching your stream or whatever um, was like excessive. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, I could definitely see that. And then I had a third one. And while I was saying it, I, um, Oh, the third one is, I think she tries to do like a, Ava- uh nerve is like we're trying to do more of an outreach to get like more children interested in piloting piloting evangelions um can you stream for us and she does a stream but then a bunch of people go in and are like being really shitty in the chat about nerve and like where their funds are going and everything and she just like gets very upset and the like stream gets cut off early um, I think that's the the final one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm I'm very I'm very impressed with our answer to this question. Actually, these yeah. three episodes all definitely happen. Um. Then three. What if Gendo fucked off though? Yeah. Fuck you, Gendo. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> one thing we can uh, all agree on. What if Gendo fucked off? Then uh, four. Ina says, Evangelion was one of the first things I watched out of defiance because an older kid told me not to because I was too young. 
Um, in this case, I was a freshman in high school and a senior was like, hey, buddy, give it a couple years, maybe. And I was like, fuck that. I have seen this at the city library and uh, I did not get it at that age. So I guess he was right. Uh, and this was not the only piece of media I did this with or even the only piece of media I did uh, this with with this specific guy. Either of you have stuff like that. Um for me, not particularly, just because I, I think I've talked about this on the podcast, but like as the youngest of five, um, I just saw a lot of stuff as a kid because like it was very hard for my parents to tell me like, you can't watch this movie or whatever, but all the rest of us are going to. Um, and so I just watched a lot of stuff that like, like I do have the, I watched a lot of stuff when I was too young, but I didn't have anything that I like watched out of defiance. Um because I kind of just had access to this stuff in a way that like, yeah, I like it just, this never really specifically came up of like, Oh, you're too young to, to be able to watch this. Um, yeah, yeah. I don't know if I, you have thoughts here. Um, yeah, I'm kind of with you. Uh, I don't recall anything where I specifically was like engaging with it out of defiance. Cause someone told me not to, um, but I definitely have a lot of things that I just like happened upon or chose to engage with, um, that I like, I definitely was too young for <laughs> and did not get at all. And then came back to it later and was just like, oh yeah, like this, like is completely different from what I thought. And I didn't get it at all when I read it last time. Um, so I have plenty of those, but I don't know. I don't. I don't think that's really yeah. in the spirit of the question. Um, yeah. Yeah. No. I guess you. I guess you and me. We just. We didn't really have a lot of people telling us stuff when we were kids. We just yeah. kind of did whatever um, the fuck we wanted. A, a <laughs> uh, feature of my childhood was was definitely a. Um, absence one might even say neglect uh of parental figures at times so um i had pretty free range of a lot of stuff as a kid um then uh in the interest of time i'm not going to read enos like little thoughts here on shimagamington say three nocturne because there's not like a specific question um she is like this is a good smt and yeah nocturne is fucking great i love it um and then more praise. Thank you once again, Ina. Um, she says that she does also read the academic articles. So Ina and Zhuo, at least two people, are reading along with the podcast as well, uh, which is just incredible. We have two people who do this. <laughs> that is um, that is uh, two more than I. That is four more than I ever thought would uh, would do that when we started. So um, thank yeah. you. Uh, shall we move on to our non-anime stuff? I I think so. Yeah, um, kind of a tangent here, but I'm thinking about maybe um, visiting Chicago in like September. Um, I'll probably stay with uh with Jess. Probably just be for a couple of days, but um, if you're around when I visit, you should. Yeah, definitely. I will. I'll. I will be around. Um. I was actually looking into because uh, like Phoebe Bridgers announced her tour recently. 
and the Chicago concert is just Pitchfork and like I'm not fucking going to Pitchfork but Uh. um, (laughs) like even without a pandemic uh, music festivals of that scale are just like I don't know if I can fully handle them anymore Uh, I don't want to just be like in fucking I forget is it Grant Park I think that they do that in Mm. I just don't want to be like in a giant outdoor festival anymore yeah and also (laughs) Um, it's pitchfork yeah and also it's pitchfork um so but i was looking at other ones and i was like most of the ones that are like in driving distance are also just like inconvenient days of the week and things for me as like a person who has a job um and the one option was maybe going it, I would have to like take a half day at least from work to to drive there, but going to uh, St. Louis where Autumn is and just like <laughs> seeing the Phoebe Bridgers concert in St. Louis. Oh, nice! Um, and spending the night, but um, definitely like the current COVID variants seem to affect children a lot more. Yeah. Um, like the new one, and so I think one like my PTO situation is just. Like, I don't have a ton. Um, I could maybe make it work, but um, with the COVID variants, I don't really want to go to a concert. Um, like, in September in particular, when it will probably be at its height. So, yeah. um, very understandable. Which is to say, I will probably be around Chicago in September. <laughs> <laughs> okay, um, good. Yeah, because I would, I would never, I would never think to visit Chicago without, uh, seeing you unless it was just like a complete imposition but um yeah i also just like i've been wanting to come for like quite some time but i never want to just be like you know (laughs) you like i know you're very busy and then there's also like covid's been a factor for a long time so i've never broached the subject um but yeah i've been wanting to visit for like a very long time and now like i was talking to jess last night and she brought it up and i was like you know what yeah i'll just come in september yeah um this is actually just like uh, i'll figure out how to cut this but this is just getting right into why i'm even bringing fiona apple right now like for, there's multiple reasons I, I already brought up that uh evangelion got me thinking about being a teen in a way where um like I, I was also more inclined to go listen to When the Pawn by Fiona Apple and like think about it in the context of stuff that I've been thinking about with Evangelion. Uh, but also, like, listeners of Ornate Stairwells would already know this, but uh, Autumn came and visited for a little bit in Chicago. Uh, and, you know, we hung up, hung out and watched some movies. And at one point, I think I, I forget exactly how it came up, but I was just like, do you like know any Fiona Apple? Um, and they said like, basically they hadn't listened to any and they listened to the, her new album. Um, I forget the, it's like something, the bolt cutters, fetch the bolt cutters. I forget the, I fetch the bolt cutters. Um, yeah, that sounds correct. Um, and didn't like really like it. And I was like, I actually didn't really like that album much either. And like, for me, the two albums are title and then especially when the pawn and yeah, I was then going to like 
ask you, Connor, on on Mike here, when are you going to come visit me in Chicago? But now we've talked about that. So uh, that's really that's really <laughs> um, sweet. Um, yeah. Well, yeah i I already headed you off. That's how that's how badly I wanted to come visit you. Um, yeah, is that I headed you um, off before you even invited me. One might say that we uh, are sync compatible or whatever the term I forget. What is the term from I'm trying to do a Pacific Rim thing here. Oh, oh, drift I, compatible. Oh, drift yeah. compatible. Yeah. Um, yeah, we go. Drifting I went to sync, which is the Chicago. Ava thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, th- this is part of why I brought when the pawn in particular, because I had that conversation with autumn, like two weeks ago. And then I was like, man, I should re-listen to title and when the pawn and when the pawn in particular just like still is an incredible album to me um even as it's like one of the things with fetch the bolt cutters when i listen to it is that it kind of sounds dated to me in this weird way and when i go and listen to when the pawn i can hear some of the same like dated quality to it and yet I don't know if it is just that I have such nostalgia for this album that I see past that, or if it, I do think that like when the pawn is more um, like just exciting and interesting as an album. Um, but maybe I'm off base and this is just my nostalgia speaking. Like I, I don't know, but um, that's the you, vibe uh, I have. What do you mean by dated? Um. So one of the one of the things that one of the thoughts that I had, and I talked to my friend uh, Shannon about this as someone who's familiar with Fiona Apple as well as Phoebe Bridgers, um, is that I think Fiona Apple was my generation's Phoebe Bridgers, <laughs> um, and now Phoebe Bridgers exists and is doing. Like, I feel like people have taken what Fiona Apple was doing at the time and has developed, have developed on it. And there's like been new generations of like what Fiona Apple was for like me as a, you know, in high school, um, as this like, uh, like in some ways Fiona Apple was like the big all female musician. Uh, it was like one of the, the, the big ones. And it was, just, I think, especially one of the big ones who was like doing this kind of confessional, like um, writing about love lives, but not in this like love song sense, but often more about like breakups or abusive relationships or just like the weird tumultuous stickiness of relationships. Mm-hmm. Um, that is like what I think Phoebe Bridgers is for a lot of people now. And I think... Um, like one of the things when I was talking to Shannon about this is she was like, Fiona Apple feels more mainstream. And I was like, I don't even know if that's like necessarily true because like Phoebe Bridgers was on SNL. Yeah. Right. That's pretty much <laughs> like, the I think just like, mainstream. yeah. And I, I just think like the way that pop music and mainstream pop music versus like indie pop music, like there have been, many downsides to streaming, but I think also like the internet and um, streaming and just like the way that music is consumed now has like blurred lines in such a way where Phoebe Bridgers 
is mainstream, even as she is not like a part of the same uh, record label like system that Fiona Apple, I think, had to be to get like heard. Yeah. I think that has changed in some ways, but I think like she's still like most people know who Phoebe Bridgers is. Yeah. Um, who is like familiar enough with music to have known who Fiona Apple was back in the day. Um, yeah. I think, uh, to be honest, I think indie pop has like gone well past the point of having just like fused into mainstream pop and become like mm-hmm. basically the same thing. Um, the exact same way that like, Alt rock made that migration in the eighties or whatever, um, and just like went from being, oh, this is like alternative to like, yeah, this is the dominant mainstream genre. Um, yeah. <laughs> so I feel like that migration has like been made at this point. Yeah, um, and I think Fiona Apple in some ways was like one of the first artists who, f- at least for me at the time felt like was bridging that gap as someone who was listening to a lot of like truly underground music at the same time that I was listening to Fiona Apple. Um, and there was a distinction of like everyone knew criminal. Most people had not listened to the entirety of when the pawn, um, they might know some songs from it. Like paper bag was fairly well known, mm-hmm. uh, fast as you can, I think was, was also fairly well known. Um, but like, I feel like a lot of people who would watch MTV would be familiar with Fiona Apple, but would not necessarily um, be listening like, to like her albums, her whole album. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, like in the same way that they might be more inclined to go by like Hanson or whatever, or like Backstreet Boys. Like those like felt like they were like bigger albums as well um because of like the the force of like the songs and like them as stars where people knew all the songs and were going to concerts and things um in a way that was like fiona apple had more of an intimate feel and some of that was probably constructed to sell her but also some of it was like inherent her as the yeah her as this person who was bridging this gap between like indie all and like mainstream um, in a way that I think Vivian Bridgers is also extremely doing right now. Um, like, and even as like the line between that has been blurred more now, like I think Phoebe Bridgers is also connected to people who might actually be a little bit more um, like less well-known in the popular consciousness. Um, like, are you familiar with Claude? Like the, uh, non-binary musician who I think was the first person put out on Phoebe Bridger's own record label. Um, so I, I am not, but I have to pair that with the caveat that <laughs> my familiarity is not really representative because yeah. um, I am very shit about listening to like new music. And by new, I mean anything past 2010. Um, not, yeah. and this is not all related to value judgments. Um, this is just like what I, find myself doing for some reason so um oh it's a long way of saying i don't know shit about current music really yeah the the other thing here that like i think also ties into all of this is the fact that like when the pawn being uh produced being wholly written by 
Apple herself and then produced by John Bryan is like also indicative of like this time and like what that bridging meant. Um, because a lot of like a lot of this is still true to this day. Like Taylor Swift does not write most of her songs. Um, a lot of pop musicians, their songs are written for them. And this was this more like singer songwriter thing, which there are still like pop stars to this day as well. But like that singer songwriter mode, I think is also pointing more towards something that's like bridging this gap. Um, that is like leaning more towards like someone actually talking about like creating these songs and like writing their own, um, stories and their own lyrics and everything. It is like more distinct from like the pure pop music churn of like, let's get someone who writes good catchy songs and let, then let's like get an attractive person with a good voice to sing it. Um, which is what like boy bands were modeled off of. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, You've anyways. successfully incited all of the Taylor <laughs> Swift and boy band groupies to come destroy a podcast. So um, thank you. Uh, I I really enjoy some Taylor Swift albums. I just also know that the albums that I enjoy and the albums that I don't enjoy are often based largely on who was actually writing those songs. <laughs> um, I, there are I, just I, some good com- <laughs> pop music composers who I enjoy. Um, I have no comments on Taylor Swift. Uh, <laughs> you've already dug our hole deep enough, I think. So... <laughs> Um, I have no further comments. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, maybe talk a little bit specifically about like other thoughts that I have on. So the full title of this album, uh, it's usually just shortened to when the pawn with like an ellipsis at the end. But the full title is when the pawn hits the conflict, he thinks like a king. What he knows throws the blows when he goes uh, to the fight and I'll win the whole thing for he enters the ring. There's no body to batter when your mind is your might. So when you go solo, you hold your own hand and remember that depth is the greatest of heights. And if you know where to stand, then you know where to land. And if you won't, or if you fall, it won't matter because you'll know that you're right. Um, at the time that this was released, it broke the record for longest album title. Uh, it was quickly replaced by Chumbawamba, who I think still holds the record. Um, and the name of the Chumbawamba album, it's, it's often shortened to the boy bands have won. So um, <laughs> boy bands again. This is like clearly part of like what was being talked about in popular music and this like crossover space at the time. Um so why did I bring this? I guess uh, I will like start out there beyond just what I've already said. And it is that like I listened to this and realized that I had feelings about this album that I think were also that are like tied up in the feelings that I was also having about Evangelion. Um, when the Pawn in particular was an album that I listened to and uh, as a closeted, even to myself, trans woman felt like it was giving me access to some sort of like feminine anger that I was to some degree having, but not being able to like understand or express. Um, like this is an album that is like full of angry songs, especially limp, like mm-hmm. limp as a song that I loved a lot at the time. And in retrospect, when I listen to it and think about it, like, 
When I was in high school, I did not fully understand how much my second girlfriend had abused me. Um, I think I still thought of that relationship to some degree as abusive, but there are like things that like, even within the last like two years, as I've like more come to terms with what that relationship was, have like, like, this is a thing I haven't really said publicly. I, I've told this to like a select few, but I, I guess I'll say it right now. Um, for a long time, I did not really realize that she raped me because it was like cyber sex and not physical sex, but that that is actually something that happened. <laughs> and that is like something that I've had to process. And that when I listen to limp, I'm extremely thinking about um, because the title limp comes from like the, it's a, all of the stuff about like being angry about like, uh, I never did anything to you, man. Like, why did you do this? But like, you know, the the line being, but like soon you'll be lying limp in your own hand of like trying to like defang this representation for her of something that I like that song feels like it is gesturing towards like some sort of sexual abuse um, and like trying to break from that. Yeah. So this is an album that I think is like very, very... Um, there, there are parts of it that I, f- like, especially as I've been listening to it multiple, like, on repeat sometimes while working in things in preparation for this episode. Um, there have been things that have been, like, standing out to me. But th- this is an album that I think is, like, very, uh, one, there's a lot of anger in it. And it is anger about, like, ways that she has been treated by uh, lovers or, like, ex-lovers. Um, and then there's also, like, lots of complicated feelings that are expressed. Um like Love It in particular is the song about like when you have broken up with someone and you are having to like retrain your thinking because you are still thinking of them in this way of like someone who you were with and you aren't anymore um like I believe it's Love Ridden is the one that has like this like no not baby anymore like I thought of this person as baby and then I'm like no it's it's not this and like soon when I see you I'll just use your simple name like this is like our relationship is in this process of changing and that is like immediately follows up Limp which is a song that is like very angry about someone who like in some way did her wrong and again I think the song heavily implies some sort of abuse and like sexual abuse um and following it up with like Love Ridden, which is this like breakup song about like missing this person, and yeah. Paper Bag also being the song about like wanting someone and not being able to have them. Um, this like song like bounces around. Um, like the the most profound one for me is like juxtaposition is the last two tracks are there's get gone which is the song of just like you should avoid me you should stay away from me i'm like too much of a mess um you should just like get away from me and it's like specifically ending with like basically like run away from me like avoid me as fast as you know as fast as you can is another one about this but like yeah you you should like i think fast as you can is like centered on that and then get gone to me was um more about this realization of like oh this is not about like me this is about like you and how you've abused me and i'm not going to tolerate anymore and this is the moment where i'm like this is not salvageable this is abusive and like you just Um, you need to leave 
No, I, I was mixing two things I was thinking about because there is fast as you can, which then goes into the way things are, which yeah, like yeah. is a juxtaposition. But then get gone. This is this is the one that was actually the most like profound juxtaposition to me, which is so the very end of get gone is like fucking go because I've done what I could for you and I do know what's good for me. Am I going to heal from this? He won't admit to it. Nothing to figure out. I gotta get him out. It's time the truth was out that he don't give a shit about me. And then it immediately goes into like the line of I know, which is, so be it, I'm your crowbar, if that's what I am so far, until you get out of this mess. I will pretend that I don't know of your sins until you're ready to confess. So be it, I'm your crowbar. That's what I am so far Until you get out of this mess And I will pretend That I don't know of your sins Until you are ready to confess
just consider this all the time all the time i'll know i'll know and it's basically the song of like i am okay in this relationship which presumably might be with like a new person but mm-hmm. i am okay like the next line is like uh of the next verse is um and you can use my skin to bury secrets in and i will settle you down and it's like it is this love song that is specifically about like you know the final verse is like so for the time being i'm being patient and amidst this bitterness if you can consider this um and it's just like i'm going to like wait around for you to realize that i'm a person who loves you and is like going to genuinely try and take care of you um it is like a really meaningful ending to this album to me uh but it is also an album about being like okay with someone using you to some extent Mm -hmm. because you're just like hoping that eventually they will realize that you very deeply care about them um, and that this will like that you are doing this like certain selfless, like vulnerable act of love for this person kind of just hoping. And in this moment, perhaps just being content with like that hope of like, maybe they'll notice at some point and, and maybe this will like turn into something more, but even if it doesn't for right now, I'm like still just okay playing this role and having that specifically, like this song immediately follow up of like, he don't give a shit about me. (laughs) It's just like such this, it is this juxtaposition that for me as someone who within the last year is beginning to wonder if I might have bipolar disorder (laughs) is also a thing where it's like, like this is written in this album in a certain way Mm -hmm. of like bouncing between like manic states and depressive states and like, um, having these really intense anger and then just like being content with um, like an unrequited love that you have <laughs> um, is like this album still hit me today in a way and that I like understood more why it was hitting me than I think I did when I originally listened to it. And so I find it like, I think it is still a really good album. Um, 
It is still my favorite. I've listened to all of the Fiona Apples and uh, Apple albums. And this is still the one that like grabs me. That has uh, there's like a dynamism to the music that like fetch the bolt cutter seems to be trying to do, but like doesn't actually capture in the same way that this just like feels genuinely exciting. There are songs that are just like playing with tempo. Um, the drums are incredible on this album. And so again, I don't know if that's just pure nostalgia on my point, but uh, on my part, but like this still feels really exciting and um, fresh, even as I can hear in a way that at the time was like less pronounced that um what was the band that amanda palmer had um like this feels still somewhat of the time um the the dresden dolls oh okay and i think like the dresden dolls have aged far worse (laughs) than fiona apple and definitely like i feel like people the impression that people have of amanda palmer is different than like fiona apple right now (laughs) Yeah. Um I I don't But I can I can hear I can kind of hear a similarity between like Fiona Apple and Amanda Palmer now that I didn't notice as much at the time. Even as if you go back and listen to the Dresden dolls, it is still far more like <laughs> I don't know if this fully makes sense, but like the Dresden dolls feels like steampunk in a <laughs> embarrassing way <laughs> that Fiona Apple does not. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, um, I don't know if I pick up on any steampunk in, <laughs> in Fiona Apple, um, and I don't know anything about the Dresden Dolls, to be honest. Um, yeah, so I, can't I think there's, there's just, like, a similarity in the way that some... So, like, the Dresden Dolls, uh, in particular, self-describe themselves as Brechtian punk cabaret, but there's, right. like, a certain, like, level of, like, cabaret mixing in with stuff that I think Fiona Apple also in, like, she has a very what might be described as like sultry vocal style um that I think is really highlighted in like criminal if you listen to criminal from title yeah um but and that with like just some of the way that like horns or um like synth sound like a certain style of synth sound are employed on this album i can I can like kind of see how these were roughly concurrent sounds coming from like. You know, Dresden Dolls was a duo, but I think is also still kind of like perceived of as like this female alt artist. Like Amanda Palmer was more of the breakout of the Dresden Dolls. So I can like see, I I can feel that similarity a little bit more in retrospect. And yet I still think like Fiona Apple is far more interesting and is not just like, like Fiona Apple when the pond does not sound steampunk to me. I'm using steampunk to specifically like call out what is different about the Justin dolls. Yeah. I guess my, so this is kind of a tangent, but like, (laughs) so my first question is like, you know, why, what makes that bad? You know, the, like the, the qualities that you're talking about. I mean, um, like the steampunk or just like, you know, the stuff that you're like, um, the, like the fact that the certain, like, ways of using horns or like the the certain um elements of the music are like characteristic of that time period you know like i mean you could say it's dated but like you know to me i'm like that's not something that's bad that's just like 
a characteristic of the music that makes it what it is. You know what I mean? Yeah. I don't think it it, it is necessarily in and of itself like a bad thing. And yet I think sometimes stuff that there are things that are dated that I come to not because it is like music that it is in and of itself. Um, Again, I have a, a movie podcast that are about like the aesthetic experience of watching a movie, the like erotics of cinema um, and things that are, are like, the third man is an old movie and yet it does not feel dated in that like, uh, experiential sense. Um, there's still like things that are excited, exciting about watching the third man, but there are other movies that do not feel like as exciting to me. Um, or it's just like pleasurable and interesting to experience. And as like someone who enjoys that aspect of media, it is this thing of like, sometimes there are things that are dated and, there's still value in returning to it and looking at like the history and the lineage. And yet it is not something that is going to like, like I am going to engage with it as a historical document and not as like a thing that is like evoking more like immediate interest or like excitement or um, is like activating other parts of my brain beyond this just like purely historical contextual part. Okay. Because um, that they're makes like, sense. yeah, because like, because, because the element it feels like, or, or the arrangement of elements is just like, it's been done so many times now that it's just like old and you're tired of hearing it kind of. Yeah. Or that there are things that have built on it and have built on it in such ways where what is happening now is more immediately like, that is like, as someone who just enjoys like the art form or whatever, is, is like has built on it in such a way where that is where I'm like more excited about like spending my time focusing on because it is like further pushing things and I'm like interested in what it is doing. Whereas like this is a thing when um so I wasn't on the episode but Hot Singles did uh Try Repetai by uh Autiker. And returning to it was a very interesting experience because I remember listening to this um, far closer to when it came out. I don't think I listened to it like the year that it came out, but fairly like I I was listening to like you know intelligent dance music fairly <laughs> early on in my yeah. like, musical history. Um, and at the, best the time, genre label ever concocted. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, and at the time, like what Autiker was doing and like what this album represented, like these were like very for what like electronic music was at the time this like that album felt for me extremely like dehumanized it felt extremely electronic and um was like pushing at like the inhuman like what could inhuman music sound like and that has just been like fully exploded by stuff like sophie and things since in a way where when i now go back and listen to try repetai I am not hearing it like at the time it sounded like it was evoking like the, the precision of like metal screws, like going into like perfectly uh, threaded, like hole, like metal hole or something. Like there was like this like weird, 
because these like synthetic sounds and the way that they were being used in this way that was like trying to remove these like human elements of music uh just in the way that the sounds are being constructed like it felt far more like harsh than it does listening to it now because the way that people have pushed like electronic sounds and the noises that those can create in ways that become like even more inhuman like they have gone so far beyond it that it, that that is no longer what is interesting to me about this album and when i then go to listen to try repetai what become what i'm now focused on is just like oh they're actually just like doing interesting things about how they are like repeating like a musical bar or like you know like a, a set of bars here and like repeating them and then like slowly developing on the theme and like taking it in new directions but that like my experience of listening to it now is far more like in line with listening to jam bands <laughs> than it was at the time where it felt like it was more like breaking my conception of what like the sounds used to make music could be um if that makes sense and so yeah. I still find like Tri Repertai an interesting album, and it is also like very historically interesting for me. And yet I don't get the same at the time that I listened to it, I got this like extreme um experiential, like this is like changing how I think about music in a way that it doesn't anymore because people have just taken it and run so so far beyond it. That if I want something that's going to be really interesting and in playing with this, I'm going to listen to something like Sophie or like weird uh, at the edges of hyper pop or whatever. Like that's going to be more exciting for me in this way where I'm like genuinely invested in like how are people further pushing like musical forms. Um, yeah, it's this is an interesting conversation. And I, I know we're on a tangent, but like I I find this to be an interesting conversation. So I, I'm just going to continue it. Um <laughs> I think, like, none of what I'm about to say is, uh, is, is meant to, like, uh, dispute any of what you're talking about. Um, I do think there's a lot of things going on here when we talk about music this way, because even, like, the language of, like, beyond or, like, this artist has done this better is it it's almost uh it's reflecting this kind of like almost this like triumphalist view of like the progression of music where like you know something in the future like it, it has these presuppositions of like this aspect of the music could be done better uh and then like it is done better by like an artist later on with like superior technology or like superior artistry or, or what have you. And then somehow like that almost like vampirically <laughs> uh, like sucks the life out of these like previous, previous works because like, Oh, well yeah, the thing that they did has been done better now. So now it's like, you know, there's not, like this content is not really like compelling anymore. Um, and I think it's important. Like there's a lot of ways that like we talk about music and that we like need to talk about music. And, and I often think about this, like 
this exact thing about music because um, in relation to something that like one of my professors told me a long time ago um, that has really stuck with me, which is that when someone like points at a piece of art or like a text or is engaging with it and says like, this is good or this is bad um, or any form of that, it tells you like very much about the person and it tells you like almost nothing about the text. And I think it's interesting how like, it's important that, and I do this too. Like, I'm not saying that I don't do this because um, I absolutely do. Like there's a form of discourse around music where we are like using, talking, using these terms and like hewing to this kind of discourse of like this artist does X better or this artist is better or this artist is bad. And I think that form of discourse is important because like we should be able to talk about like our experiences of music. And I feel like that's what we're ultimately in that discourse. Like we're we're talking about ourselves and it's informed by a critical, some critical judgment of the music, but like, we're really talking about ourselves and that is perfectly valid and like an important way of talking about music. But at the same time, I'm like, and this comes from like, look, I like a genre of music that like everyone thinks is garbage and just like treats with complete disdain. And that's fine. (laughs) Um, But like, the fact there are so many albums that I can think of where it's like album A and album B are like this sound 95% the same and are like in very much the same like genre, even more so than like, again, I don't know the Dresden Dolls, but like I'm, I'm willing to bet even more so than like Fiona Apple or the Dresden Dolls. And yet like, if I listen very closely to these two albums, like, they can be completely different in like in extremely meaningful ways to the extent that I'm like, Oh yeah. Like, you know, if I'm taking an inventory of like the sounds and the tropes, like on these albums, they're like the DNA matches almost completely, but the way that this is like arranged and all of the like granular details of the album and just the, the entirety of like the thing and what the elements like arrange into makes it something completely different that is like worthwhile and unique, like on, on those terms. And even if like another artist is like, oh yeah, like I'm listening to Album A and I'm trying to like kind of do the same thing because I'm inspired by it, like, and then they also make an interesting album, it's just like, Album A is always, like, it, it isn't made worse or it isn't made, like, less interesting for me because I'm just, like, there is, like, I'm just, like, reading the, like, the like the gestalt of this album in such a way that, like, I can't just pull out, like, these individual parts and be, like, you know, like, this is bad, like, this is good. 
if that makes any sense. Like, I think every album for me, like, I try to take them all, well, in theory, in an ideal world, because again, like, you know, I, I sometimes am just like, yeah, I hate that artist. <laughs> um, but like, if I were ever to, to say, like, publicly, like, yeah, this artist, like, sucks or whatever, like, I probably wouldn't, because uh, if I don't like them that much, like, I'm not taking the time to, like, I would feel com- I would feel compelled to, like, really spend a lot of time with that album and make sure, like, I felt that I understood it. Bef- and then, like, if I did that, I would probably be like, oh, yeah, the album has, like, you know... I'm not like going to make a value judgment on it is what I'm saying. Um, and, yeah. and I think there's just like, there's, so there's a lot going on like around these conversations where I'm like, I, when we're talking generally about music and we're just like, in a way, like talking about music as a way of like talking about ourselves and talking about like other things, like this is incre- this is perfectly like valid, but then I'm also like, if this is this is not like a fully sufficient method of like critical inquiry, in my opinion, as like you know, I, I don't think it really gets at like what is what is interesting about any particular album. Um, to say like you know, good or bad, or like better or worse, if that makes any sense. Yeah. I I think like part part of what's coming up here is that um for me this is not to say that there are not like things that can still be discussed to some degree along these terms but like I don't think there ever is a truly objective read of anything because yeah. I think I think all media and I think this is especially true of art um I think that art, like all art, even bad art, is still a conversation that is happening between the artwork and to some degree the person who created the artwork, Um, but also just like the artwork itself. And then the like spectator or um, listener or like what, you know, whatever the optimal term for that artwork would be. Um, And that that is like a conversation that is happening to some extent. And that so everyone's experience of a piece of art is going to be different. And so then, and I'm not even doing this in terms of like this consumerist mode of like people will choose their time of what to spend on. But I think like, this is my pitchfork reading like one out of 10. Like, yes, I'm going to like, I'm going to quantify and measure these, um, which is ultimately just like a permutation of the commercialist. But Yeah. yeah, but like, there is still a certain degree of like you have conversations with lots of people in your life. And there are conversations that are, there are people who you have conversations with where you are so excited about the conversations that you have with this person that you create a podcast where you talk for multiple hours into a mic and like release it to other people to listen to because uh, you find the conversation really engaging and interesting and something that you want to continue to spend time on. And then there are other conversations that you have with other people where um, the main point of the conversation is like, what do you want to order? 
and you tell them and you still might like end up having really engaging conversations with that person. Um, and sometimes you will end up like taking the time to have that conversation with that person. And that can also be valuable and rewarding. But, I, but I think there's like a certain amount of like, for me, a lot of criticism is talking about what is the like experiential nature of art and like, what is it that like, what is the experience of this artwork? And that, and that at a certain point, like you're obviously just going to have things that will like be more interesting to you and that you are going to spend more time on. Right. There will be things there that you conversations prefer like, yeah, of course. Yeah. And that there can be value of like trying to break out of only listening to like, this is what is interesting to me or whatever. But there is also a certain amount of like, how do I talk about the importance of like, how do I talk about when the pawn by Fiona Apple without one talking about the importance of it. And then in trying to talk about why I still find this album, very exciting, trying to compare it to like other things that are happening. And so like, I find it exciting in the same way that I find Fiona, uh, Phoebe Bridgers exciting right now. Um, and I can hear parts of it that like remind me of these other things that I was also listening to at the time. Like I, I had a Dresden dolls album and yet those have not stuck with me. And like, how do I talk about why is it that this other album hasn't like actually stuck with me? Why is it that this album sticks with me? Trying to talk about that is me still like having a conversation with these artworks. And when I'm coming down on like Fiona Apple is still more exciting. And I'm saying that as a thing where I think like a lot of people might also have that same feeling. And yet I know not everyone is going to, and that's like, that's okay. Um, but I'm also like trying to get at like that. I think this, I think for me, when the pawn is like still grasping at something that feels more like, um, true. And I'm using true in this like sense that is different than like factual in this like objective yeah, sense, sure, that, like yeah. that feels more true to me and my own experiences of the world and like my own experiences with like, um, abuse and all of these things then even as like something like um let me actually like look up what the dresden dolls album even was um we're just going but, like that on one like dresden dolls right now. <laughs> <laughs> well it, like it is i got yeah it was just the the self-titled the dresden dolls um but like that is like also a album that is like touching on certain things but that just like doesn't that like no longer resonates with me in the same way. And, and trying to like unpack that is, I think also still just like an interesting and valuable thing for me. Um, if that makes sense. Absolutely. Um, And I think, you know, I'm not, I don't want to suggest that. Like when we're talking about like our, I'll I'll just say like preferences or like dislikes or whatever, our experience of the music and then how that's like, we're trying to use language that often, you know, becomes like good or bad or like prefer or dislike or some form of value judgment. Yeah. Like I'm not, that's not unmoored from like, it's not completely unmoored from the music. You know what I mean? Like you're responding to something in the music and that interaction is like completely valid and, you know, like worthy of discussion. Um Mm-hmm. And I think for me, like, 
at the same time, though, the alternate, like the other, the other approach that like I'm talking about, by the same token, like it's not a moored from subjectivity because that's like obviously impossible. Um, it's all you know. You're you're perceiving this like album, which we're just using uh, the term album because I think we're giving ourselves away as like album people. <laughs> um, you're perceiving this album like it's filtered through your subjectivity and like all you know all of your personal preferences whatever like constitutes them are you know going into like your uh your evaluation of it your understanding of it um i think for me it's like you it's it's about where the like discourse is centered um and where like the examination is centered it's not that you know one approach is objective and one approach is subjective. It's that like the like quote unquote criticism that I, that I, that I find more interesting <laughs> um, is like centered on the text in a way of like, okay, this is what like this album is doing. Like I'm deeply digging in to like this music and really sitting with it and really like thinking about, like what this is doing on a deep level and trying to like perceive the, like the depth in this text on the basis like of the text and not so much of like, and, and you know, that is, doesn't happen in a vacuum. So you can be like, Oh yeah, like this is part of, you know, they're like doing something similar like another artist does something similar but like you know in this album like is it deployed differently well like probably unless it's just an exact copy it's probably deployed differently and like that different configuration is going to yield like a different meaning and that's what i'm interested in is being like okay yeah this same like you know this is the same like subject matter in this in these lyrics but like what are what are these lyrics like actually doing in conjunction with this like different song instead of just being like oh you know i kind of like i like this other song better i feel like like it deals with the subject better and i'm like no they're like <laughs> they're you know that's you're already anchoring it to like some sort of like preconceived like conclusion that you know and, and then it, like turning that into a value judgment whereas i'm like you know it that doesn't have to that doesn't have to be the result it can just be like you know oh this like this album does you know x y and z and this is what like let's draw some conclusions about what like the meaning is like here uh, from the way that these things are arrayed. And then like, I, I don't know, that's examinations like that, where it's centered on that side of it. I am like, that is like my preference in terms of like the music discussion that I engage with. Um, and I use the word preference, like <laughs> very intentionally in light of like 
everything that we've talked about um, because both things are like uh, totally valid. But I just think that like, you know, one type of discussion is centered on like what we are like when it's on us and talking about ourselves. And the other type of discussion is centered like more on the text. And uh, that's why, that's why I was like interested in, that's where we started this tangent. Cause I was interested in like yeah. your comments about like why you, you know, why you felt it was dated and what that meant. Um, yeah. I, so I think some of this is also coming down to, for, for me, I have a like perspective on art that is like deeply grounded in um, like, I don't like I, my mind is going to humanity and I guess I'm going to say it, but I don't know if that's fully like what I'm trying to say here. But like I for me talking about art like an album or an anime or a movie or whatever. Um, part of what is exciting about it for me is like having the conversations and those are one is sometimes that is just the conversation with the artwork itself, but also that is often the conversation with other people um, that for me, I'm a person who's like, I, i really enjoy talking to other people about art i really like for me i extremely enjoy one saying like this is something that i i care about that i love that i'm interested in let me share it with you um let me talk to you about why this like resonates with me let me talk to you about why this is important to me because in doing so like we are having conversations about ourselves in the process and i also really like when people say like this is an album or a painting or you know whatever it might be that i really care about and resonate with and i might experience that art and say like in the initial experience being like, this does not connect with me in this immediate way where if I was experiencing this in isolation, I would be like choosing to continue to have that conversation with the artwork itself. But then I will do more of this textual reading that you're talking about where I start to like dig further into the text and try and break down like, what is it about this text that's like important to me Uh, or that is like that it is doing and that I can like understand and then begin to like, fully like better understand because what i'm trying to do there is like understand the person who told me that like this is something that's meaningful to me um there's a lot of stuff that i will experience and not care about at all and like will in my head kind of write off as like a thing that i'm just not going to spend more time on um or sometimes you can be so like moved by the enthusiasm that someone has for something I mean, this is, this is like kind of what you're saying. Yeah. Like, you can be so moved by that, that you're like, okay, you know what? Like there is something there like that <laughs> I didn't perceive yeah. and I should like take some time to like try and perceive what's, what is there? Cause now I'm kind of convinced. Yeah. Well, and it, like, it is this thing too, where like on ornate stairwells, Autumn and I rag on MCU movies a lot because fair enough. One is that like, <laughs> Yeah, like one fair, but like both of us, I think, had this experience of um, the MCU. I think is symptomatic of something that happened with like Hollywood cinema in particular. But 
this like trend that currently exists in cinema that neither of us find like interesting or respond to um that like we find like and that like in its domination we have then like turned against it because like so much of it is trying to be this in this way that is like not what we find interesting or exciting about cinema and so for us it's like like we are going to rag on it because we don't it's ideological like a lot of those movies and like yeah also for like the way that it is like shut down things that we found exciting about even just like mainstream hollywood cinema of the past that like isn't happening anymore um the like the way that like mcu movies to us feel lifeless in some way and yet like on the latest export audio that came out autumn says like if anyone has an mcu movie that they like think are doing all these things that like i don't like about the mcu but that you still like really really love and care about like please tell me about it and i want to like watch it and try to like get that and i think i'm also to some degree that that way where i'm like if someone really cares about something even if i have already completely written it off as like this is actually like uh antithetical to like what i'm actually even interested in I will still be interested in in experiencing it and trying to understand it and have that conversation with someone um, <laughs> in the way that like we had a conversation about end of Evangelion where I still kind of hate that movie. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> but, like, <laughs> but like I, I can still appreciate it to some degree more. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And <laughs> like, it, yeah, um, yeah, this is like our, our end of Ava is a good example of like what we're talking about where like, yeah, you know, <laughs> Um, there's this whole universe of like people saying good and bad, and it's like what's really being said here is like you know stuff about like like all of those people who are like in the camp of oh Ava is like it or end of Evangelion proves that like anime is art and like blah 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 and end of Evangelion is like the best anime ever like again. I, I will stop for a moment to acknowledge that, like, I have, I use this language probably frequently. Um, So, you know, we we all do this. Um, But the people who are, like, doing that are, they're talking about themselves in some regard. And, like, it's, I think it's important to, like, acknowledge that that is, the like subtext of the of this of this conversation um because what happens when you what happens when that conversation like becomes escalated to its like extreme is that it takes the form of like a pitchfork or like what i would and this is coming from like the time where the like brief time I spent like trying to do mainstream music criticism and like I wasn't even I wasn't good at it um but being so soured on that like by this by this experience but so much of mainstream music criticism is just like shot through with this exact like like mode um and the worst of it the worst is when it becomes institutionalized in like a pitch a pitchfork or whatever that is like 
professing to be like an objective arbiter of like what is good and bad and in so doing actually like exerts a distorting effect on like discourse um because it is like not only uh you know trying to like not only taking this to an, an extreme but also like perverting it by trying to disguise the fact that what is being talked about is like preference and like subjectivity or like whatever um and trying to then like transmute that into like a quote-unquote objectivity um yeah and that is so rampant that i'm like and so influential um that it just i'm often thinking about like (laughs) about this problem um and then the the other thing i would say is like you know the other problematic part of it is that Pitchfork is a commercial institution. Um, it's commercialist. So what it's really peddling is like a kind of um, commercialistic, like taste making um, in institutional, like dominance that it's trying to exert um, through this like type of discourse. And that's why I'm like, I can't help but like have my ears prick up when uh I I see like writing of the kind of like oh yeah like this artist is like terrible like this one is better like the album sucks this one is better cuz I'm just like oh yeah it's like <laughs> um you know it it's not wrong Right. It's like I said, it's valid and for all the reasons that we're discussing, but it's just like I'm so soured on anything like remotely approaching that because of like the other forms that it takes out there. Um that it's just like driven me into this <laughs> into this corner where I'm like, okay, I I'm at a point where I'm like I will say like I really like this album. But uh, because that enthusiasm that you're talking about is, like, important just for having, like, a human discussion around art and sharing, like, ourselves. Um, But, like, whenever I'm talking about an album, and I I feel like I've tried and failed a couple times in Question Buckets um, because I'm not good enough to to actually do this. Um, But whenever I'm like, oh, wait, I should actually, like, talk about this album and do justice to it. I'm always like, okay, let me <laughs> like try and do this, uh, you know, very like deep textual analysis, which incidentally, like I tried to do for Fiona Apple um, <laughs> when we were, when I was prepping for this podcast. And this is only halfway, like me trying to bring it back to Fiona Apple because this is a wild tangent. Um, but yeah, so, okay, end of rant um yeah yeah i mean i I guess my like final thought is that like i'm at this point where i'm like so beyond not even that like there there aren't still like ways that you could say that something is objectively better than something else to some degree but i'm so far beyond like thinking that it is an interesting conversation to even have that for me saying like like that whenever i talk about like the quality of something for me 
it is always coming with like this implicit statement that I am talking about like my opinions of something and not like any objective truth about the thing. Yeah. Um, that like I approach all criticism from this perspective of like, like th- this is also something that's like, as I was doing documentary work, I was also interested in of like, that like bias is impossible to eliminate and it is like instead important to acknowledge your biases as like a means of having a more meaningful conversation like if you if you talk more honestly about the biases that you have then those like open up the ability to have more meaningful conversations about something than if you try to elide that and do like like this is the this is even something that i like consider with the way that like news is approached um in a lot of like news media sources is that all news has bias and presuming objectivity or a lack of bias i think there's still value in trying to eliminate your bias especially if you're doing something like news but i think it is still important to like in doing so acknowledge the biases that are always going to exist because otherwise like I, I I'm recalling our, our good friend Ziga Vertov, uh, and yeah. <laughs> and his quote about um, why all art is propaganda, uh, yes. art meaning generally like a you know any media, um, yeah, propaganda in the sense that you're choosing um, to omit and include certain things in those choices. Yeah, and, and so it, and I think like any stance that presumes pure unbiased objectivity is a stance that is is a stance that is like taking a specifically in doing so is actually positioning itself as more propagandistic because it is like in not acknowledging that there are still biases at work and in fact stating that there are no biases and that this is an attempt at uh like peer objectivity is in fact like trying to assert the underlying biases that still exist as objective truths um absolutely and so for me it is like valuable like i i've then reached this point where i just say like yeah that was a good movie and what i mean is like my subjective experience of that movie was i I enjoyed it (laughs) yeah (laughs) Yeah. i liked it i enjoyed it i considered this movie to be better than this other movie or whatever um like we're gonna talk about a brighter summer day and like i love a brighter summer day on letterboxd which again is like you're giving numerical ratings to movies uh-huh. and i just like i really don't think about them i do them but i don't think about them it just happens I'm just like yeah that was a five star <laughs> that was a five star i'm gonna do a five star and i like as that i'm not in any way trying to like project like this is an objective rating of this movie what i'm trying to do is just signal like what is my subjective experience of this movie? Like, let me do star ratings for that. Yeah. Not for like any objective thing. And so like a brighter summer day and rebels of the neon God both got five stars from me on letterboxd. I would say that I like rebels of the neon God more, but I also love both of these movies. Yeah. And I, this might be like a time to trans. I I don't know if you uh, want to talk about Fiona Apple. I'm okay with us moving on, but no, no, we're, we're doing this. I, so I had one more like thought on this and I think it's when it's not only like, like I'm sure any given pitchfork writer would be like, Oh yeah. You know, like, duh, like it's my opinion, but like, you know, they, they would concede that, but it's also like 
when the discourse is couched at like in this form, it is still like the thrust of it is advancing like these value judgments, which then like when in when the volume grows like in a given space, like when the volume of this type of discourse grows, like it starts to erect like norms that are based on like those value judgments, and that's where I think it can be like. The, t- the like quote unquote taste making thing enters in where it's like mm-hmm. you know it this is having a distorting effect now where like this you know actually like discussing these texts and perceiving like what is unique and uh what what is unique about them and like what they're actually saying and doing is distorted and I feel like that is something that is uh a, a massive massive loss um now conversely i will say there is something the one point i'll like bring up to complicate this is i feel like in the early days of pitchfork before it morphed into like what it was it was like a much smaller like only indie music type of like magazine um or i, I don't know the whole history of it um but I know enough to know that like it was once like a dedicated just like indie like rock or indie pop, and then it eventually like grew into this like monstrosity, and now it's like acquired by Condé Nast and is like just a fucking commercial entity. Um, I think there is a legitimacy in like when you have a subculture or like a dedicated group around a certain genre and oftentimes in those groups there is like a there are hierarchies erected and like norms established um around like oh what 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 artist is good and what's bad type thing um i think that can be a i think even in that instance it can be productive in that like that type of discourse can be creative and productive because those groups are organized around certain like ideological frames that are like always always going to be arbitrary in and of themselves like or in and of the fact that they are like ideological frames constructed by this group and then applied arbitrarily to like this music right so it's kind of an arbitrary like uh, application, but oftentimes, like, I think something organically happens when people unite around, like, a certain genre or something, and, yeah, they concoct some arbitrary, like, ideological apparatus that they then use to, like, create value judgments, but there's some sort of organic thing that happens where, like, I think that can sometimes reveal uh, reveal things about the music itself because it is, like, born of this like deep dedication and like this kind of deep engagement. So even though all of this apparatus is like somewhat artificial and arbitrary, um, there is like something organic that happens. Like I've just seen this happen around like subcultures for certain musics and discussions that happen there. Like there can be interesting uh, stuff about the music that is like generated through that discourse. 
Um, and of course, you can also have like, for all those same reasons, you can also have really toxic communities that um, are very, <laughs> are very close-minded. Um, and that's the downside of that. But um, anyway, uh, this is, I feel like this is a rant that I've just wanted to have for a while and I ended up having it now. Um, yeah. Well, and this, like, I've kind of talked about this before, but, um, like, I, I am not super interested anymore in, um, like, in writing essays, in writing articles. Yeah. Um, and it, it is not that I don't think there can still be interesting conversations for me to be, to have in that medium, but that I am excited about podcasts because the nature of a podcast itself is like you and me having a conversation and we are trying to like talk through something, but also because like, you know, if, if people are listening to this and are not part of the abnormal mapping discord, there's an abnormal mapping discord that you can join. And there's a channel in there called export audio, um, 24 seven. Is it called export audio? Or, um, it is <laughs> export chat. Yeah. Export uh, chat. But it's, it's for the network. Um, and like people will talk about the latest episode of ghost divers there. Most often it's Zhuo and Inez are like most dedicated fans, but like people will talk about ghost divers there. And I really like when people talk about ghost divers there. I, I specifically have this podcast built in such a way that when we get to the end of a series, there is a question bucket because I want a chance for people who are also listening to this to write in and like begin to engage with some sort of conversation with us. And I don't want the only way that people engage with our our podcast to be they listen to us and we make our arguments and then they just agree with us. <laughs> like I'm happy people write in and have like uh disagreements with how we've even read a text. Because that is also interesting. Like I don't it is it is fun for me when we you and me, Connor, synthesize a take about O eighth MS team. It is also fun for me that our take on OEth uh, 08MS team, I think, is more positive than a lot of the abnormal mapping discord, and that it is, like, somewhat at odds with what Great Gundam Project came to, and that, like, difference is interesting, and, you know, like, <laughs> if Em and Jackson ever want to, like, record a podcast with me where we hash out our takes on 08MS team, I would happily do it. <laughs> um, because, like, well, having I, the I, conversations great, great around the project are, are exciting. Crossover. Yeah. <laughs> But, like, having the conversations are exciting and interesting to me, um, and is, like, what is valuable about all of this, and it is why I have, like, moved away from, at one time I wanted to be a media critic in the sense of, like, writing articles for, like, Vice publications theater. and things. Yeah. Yeah. Like there was a there was a time where I very 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 easily like I was set up I was beginning to get into contact like I could have been regularly contributing to Waypoint if I like really put the work in I could have been also contributing to like like I did multiple pieces for Zam which is like what became Fan Byte but like I did multiple pieces for Zam when that existed there was a time in my life when I was trying to get into being like a video game critic. And I'm happy that I'm no longer doing that. And what I now do is a podcast that uh, is interesting, I think, in that, like, 
we have a fair no- amount of our fan base that is export audio. I think also because of our like separation from what export audio is, I feel like of a lot of export audio podcasts, we actually probably have the most fans who like aren't fans of the network in the same way, <laughs> which is weird. Um, yeah. But that's also why I'm like, hey, listener, there's an abnormal mapping discord. Um, I don't even know the best way to find it, but I'm sure if you just type in like abnormal mapping discord, you might be able to find it. Yeah, it's pretty much the um, only place that I post online uh, in any like semi-public forum. Um, so if that doesn't get you going, I mean, I don't know what will. Um, yeah, but and th- there's like a certain degree too where like you were talking about like the importance of like uh you know when we're talking within like music when we're talking about like scenes right yeah, like the way that yeah. like a punk scene might develop a community and i think like abnormal mapping has also done that there's like yeah. an approach to criticism an approach to like like if you t- search abnormal mapping discard which i just did one of the like top ones is the patreon for Ab- for abnormal mapping that says abnormal mapping is creating leftist media criticism and that's like something that is happening there like that is specifically a leftist space that is specifically a like queer and trans space to such a degree where uh like you are the only uh cis straight uh, export audio host um yeah uh, and abnormal mapping is also primarily like trans and non-binary people yeah it's it's a heavy burden (laughs) let me tell you yeah um Um, but like i i say all of this to be like what i find exciting about podcasts and also why there's even a thing like uh the question bucket here is that i'm excited about the like conversations that happen around media and that that is like valuable and that as I approach all of this, I want to like continue to like foreground conversation. And that's why I do podcasts now (laughs) is that like, you know, autumn and I often agree on movies that we're talking about. And yet we're still having conversations about them in ways that is like more interesting to me than me sitting down and like writing out uh, an essay. Um, And like, we just did an episode on wings of desire where we like, to some degree kind of make fun of academic attempts to read wings of desire that are just like, I want to write an academic uh, essay about like religion and secularism or whatever, and just like use it as a springboard. And then I just like on the podcast, use it as a springboard to talk to autumn about like my family's history in Berlin. (laughs) But it is still like a conversational thing that is happening in a different way to me that is like what is actually interesting and meaningful to me uh because also that like that's just a movie that we we talk about it but also we kind of stay in it just like just watch the movie like i (laughs) I think the core of ornate stairwells as a podcast is like you should just watch this movie um we're gonna talk about it but you should just watch it and experience it that's like we can't give you a read on it that's going to be like um like our 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 we can't do something that is like going to subsume the experience itself that you might have of experiencing this artwork. We're just gonna try and talk about why it was meaningful or like what we found interesting or exciting, but also just like go watch the movie. <laughs> yeah. Um 
and just like have whatever aesthetic experience you are going to have with the movie. <laughs> Um, and we are going to like talk about our aesthetic experience with the movie, but also just watch the movie and have an aesthetic experience. And like, we can never, uh, we can never like determine your, like your, the aesthetic your experience, experience is a be. thing that like exists and then we can never like fully capture. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it's like going to be different for everyone. So yeah. Listen we to talk about a movie. Um, yeah. So, um, let's. Let's go back to Fiona Apple for a second, if that's okay. Um, the the <laughs> little person who started it all. Um, we've been we've been recording for three hours. Okay. Okay. Well, I just want to like, um, pick it, if possible. <laughs> I want to pick up on like some of what you were talking about. Um, where so I mentioned that I like was going through earlier. And I was doing my, like, over-anxious, like, preparation thing that I always do. Um, and I was like, okay, I'm going to go through and I'm really going to, like... I mean, I've, I've listened to, like, Wind Upon many times before, you know, today. Um, so it was an album that I was, like, familiar with and already. But I was like, okay, no, I'm really going to, like, do, like, deep listening uh, to this. And I did like pretty much for, for most of the album. I took a bunch of notes and then I was like, I'm not just going to put my track by track notes on here <laughs> because that's too much. But I did feel like, uh, what emerged for me was that it, and I don't know if you, if you feel this way, but, um, it seemed to me that there is a kind of, uh, continuous narrative that is happening. Um, like, chronologically uh at through the album and has a very uh complicated or has a somewhat complicated flow to it and then a very complicated ending um that you kind of brought out a little bit um i was wondering how you would feel about the ending um in light of like all the stuff you talked about the reasons that you brought it in because for me the ending is like so, you know, the major first, like, I think it's, what is it, 11, it's 10 tracks, right? Um, um, yeah, I think. So, yeah, I, ten. I feel like the first, you know, 10 tracks, or sorry, <laughs> the first eight tracks, um, are kind of charting like this movement through this relationship, which is disintegrating and abusive. Um, and it, you know, eventually like does disintegrate. Um, and then there's that turning point that you brought out where the final track is like, seems to be talking about a different relationship where the person that she's in love with or whatever is like already with somebody else. And the, the final, like the conclusion of that song for me is like, I think she says something to the effect of, um, I know you're trying to like figure out how to like break through your own shell and then like say that you love me. Um, and I'll like, and I'm waiting for that. But if like you don't, if you don't do it in time and like I am like, before like I leave or whatever, um, 
then that's okay. And there's like a, it just like ends like, though, that's like, that's okay. Um, Yeah, it's specifically while you try to find the lines to speak your mind and pry it open, hoping for an encore, which pry it open is specifically uh, evoking the very beginning of Sobia, I'm your crowbar. Um, And also this like image throughout it of uh, like the person being on the stage and Fiona waiting by the uh, backstage door. So like, uh, and pry it open, hoping for an encore. And if it gets too late for me to wait for you to find you love me and tell me so, it's okay. Don't need to say it. Yeah. Um, so for me, this is like the resolution of this is is kind of um, it's kind of complicated because there is in as you go through the songs, there's like an emerging theme of um, independence uh, that. I think is one of the central, like ultimately becomes one of the central focuses. And I think this final track deals with that as well. In the sense of like, I'm the third person in this relationship. Like I'm not really, I'm not receiving like this nourishment from you because you're engaged with this other person and we're not really like in this relationship, but I'm like quote unquote, okay with that. Um, because I'm like having emerged from this like other abusive relationship I was in and gone through this emotional turmoil, like now I have purportedly like now I have the strength to do such a thing um to like wait on somebody uh and to like not receive this nourishment or whatever, and then if it ends up being the case that I never do get it from you, then like that's fine, and it's not. That punch isn't pulled. It's just like, oh no, I'm okay with like never receiving this nourishment, which is an interesting resolution to this narrative for me because it's kind of like, it's still this form of self denial, um, of like, it's kind of an uh, empowerment married to like a self denial, um, which I think is uh, so much of the album is dealing like lyrically and then conveyed musically as well with this kind of like emotional distension of her feelings, um, conflicting feelings being pulled in different directions, being like uncertain, uh, about like, you know, what is right and what is wrong. Um, and the tension is like, one of the things that I uh, thought was I was it, I was curious to hear like uh, your thoughts on it uh, because I feel like it doesn't it does not reconcile that like distension um, it it transforms from like oh you know um, I like the the explicitly stated like you know um, I hate myself. But like, I'm not sure, like I'm, I'm blaming you or first I'm blaming myself and then I'm blaming you for like abusing me. And then like, I'm feeling shame. So it's like this kind of combination of like distancing from like myself and also from you. Um, and just like this, this kind of emotional distension. Um, and then she like gets out of this relationship uh, and has this final track where it's like a pseudo 
uh, empowering, like confident assertion, but also like tinged with this, this open-ended, like, uh, again, this kind of like self-denial, um, which is broached, I think, on, um, paper bag, where she talks about like starvation is okay. Um, being starved for like affection. This theme kind of returns in, in an interesting way at the, on the final track. So anyway, um, yeah, that was, uh, that was what I was hoping to talk about before we went on to Gigantic Rant, but, <laughs> um, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know what your feeling is on that. Of all the songs on this album, I know is the one that has like always hit me the hardest, I think, because it does have this weird tension of, um, like I, my read on it is when she says at the end of this, like, and if it gets too late for me to wait for you to find you love me and tell me so, it's okay. Don't need to say it. Like my read on it is almost like in the moment, like, and I think Fiona Apple is like the songwriter writing these lyrics, like is aware of both of these things happening, mm-hmm. but that like the lyrics itself are expressing like there is like in the moment, I don't think it is a person very genuinely believing like, it's okay. I, you don't need to say it like, because I know, because I know, because you are like still um, in this relationship in this way that like. I can tell that you love me even if you're like never going to figure that out in the same way that like I want and that it is like very much written from the perspective of believing it in that moment, but that also the song is aware that that actually probably won't be true forever. That like there will actually be a point where it is too late where like things are going to change. And this song is like very, very specifically about being in this moment of like knowing that this is like a loving relationship and having the hope that it will and having the hope in like a very genuine way that it will eventually lead somewhere and being okay with it not leading somewhere and that being okay is like a temporary state or is a state that is like open to change um but that like still it is like capturing that moment of just like being content with like this is also i think a song like notably this song was uh like covered slash remade with king princess who's like a a lesbian um pop like musician now um and fiona apple like also performs in the the cover version or like yeah. wh- however you're going to describe it. Um, it's since Fiona Apple's like also doing it. I don't know if cover makes sense. Um, yeah. But like, this is a song that like, also I think this album overall, like part of why I also reached this is that there's like a certain amount of Misato to this album. Like it uh-huh. is like messy and it is also messy in a way that is like clearly like, heterosexually oriented like there are multiple songs that refer to like fiona apple as a woman and the uh, like other person as a man like limp and it's like talking about yeah um but there are like other songs as well that um like i think like is it paper bag that's like um, yeah not a man but a boy like i thought that you were a man but you were just a yeah, yeah. a boy and then or there's whatever. some puns on, um, uh, i think is it is it get gone where it's like sell your meat somewhere else 
Yeah. Um, And so, like, like, a lot of it is, like... Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And yet, I think this is also an album that, like, in the same way that, like, I don't know if any of Phoebe Bridger's songs, they're, they're a little bit more, like, ungendered sometimes, but also are, like... Phoebe Bridgers, a lot of those songs seem to still be about straight relationships, and yet the gays love Phoebe Bridgers, <laughs> right? Like, the queers love Phoebe Bridgers, and I think this was also kind of true with Fiona Apple, and, like, I know is one that, like, specifically stands out to me as a song that that is ungendered more, um, that does talk about while she's still around, but, like, doesn't really gender the other person. Yeah. And so it is not surprising to me that, like, this is the one that, like, King Princess would latch on to. It's unsurprising that it would be one that I would latch on to. Um, and so, like, there's also a certain amount of this. I'm, like, kind of losing <laughs> where I started with this. But, like, there, no, you, I think, there's I a think certain amount. Right. Yeah, there's a certain amount of, like, a reading to I know as well that I think resonates with a a particular queer experience of having a desire for someone like a lot of queer people have desires for someone who is not queer. And so it is like in this relationship that is actually never going to become fulfilled. Um, That you are like pining for someone who is never going to love you back because of like straightness. (laughs) Um, And sometimes just like having to be content with the, the like friendship and what it is that I think like also happens within this song and yet also there is going to be a point at which like you cannot be gay for your straight best friend forever. <laughs> yeah. Um, and like something will have to change there. Um, and yet also you can kind of just be content with like being gay for your straight best friend for a while. Um, that is also contained within this song in this way that like extends beyond what I think even the song is necessarily directly talking about, but that like King princess covering alongside fiona apple or whatever you're going to like call that like remake or whatever like making a new version together with fiona apple of the song is like further drawing out and like is then canonizing in that version yeah (laughs) um yeah no that makes sense um yeah i was trying to um like i said i was interested to get your thoughts because trying to place the song is interesting in that um the narrative seems to be like a it seems to frame up as like a progress through, you know, this abusive relationship. And it has the, the thrust of like, I'm getting through this and like, you know, emerging up, emerging out of the other side. Uh, obviously like having sustained like abuse and trauma and dealing with that. Um, but also like there's a constructive like thrust to it. I feel like where it's, a progressive thing like i'm I'm moving towards like uh some increased like wholeness or whatever it is that fiona apple is like holding out as the goal there's a sense of like movement towards that um but then at the same time there's this sense to the final line like for me of like oh like you don't have to say it because like i don't need that you know what i mean um it, not only like yeah. i don't need that because i know but just like i don't need that at all um and i think you're right that like all of those things are <laughs> orbiting the like all these readings are contained within the line um in a way that's really meaningful um 
Especially because this, like, the whole, like, wish, belief, uh, dichotomy is another, like, central theme, which is often invoking, like, moving from, like, oh, I should have faith, or, like, I, I do have faith, to, like, oh, I'm wishing, um, where it's like, okay, these are, like, different degrees of certainty and uncertainty, um, and, like, hope um, that that then color, color the final line, too, I think, where it's like, okay, is this something yeah. that is, like, believed in, or is this something that is wished for? Um, or is this something that is, like, just rejected as, you know, unnecessary, because, like, I'm now, you know, I'm, I'm asserting some sort of strength through, like, a vision of independence from, from all of this. Um, yeah. And anyway, um, I had more Fiona Apple stuff, but we are uh, rapidly approaching, uh, you know what I'm about to say. <laughs> The... We're we're rapidly approaching uh, a brighter summer day, like <laughs> exactly <laughs> um, a brighter summer um, day. I um, I don't know if I have a whole lot of uh, smart things to say about this, um, so I'll just. I think it's okay if we just um, talk generally about it, especially because you had such a strong impression of it. I mean, it was five stars in your your rating, so um, okay, so. Uh, a brighter summer day. Uh, wow, what a movie! Um, <laughs> fully worth uh, four hours of your time, I think. Very, uh, very interesting, and uh, I think just recently, in the last couple of years, released on Criterion. Um, so you can get it now, re- fully restored. Um, there's so much to say about this movie because it is so teeming with themes and uh, obviously it's four hours long so there's a lot of content Um, but it's also just for being four hours long like all of that time is just incredibly rich Um, I think the the first thing that I find really intriguing about the movie is that it is it has a way of simultaneously being very epic and very intimate uh, at the same time. So, you know, with the length and then also with the, like, it it has this kind of panoramic uh, feel or view on um, Taipei in, like, this time period uh, that is just so, like, rich and detailed. Um, and and sweeping with uh, it has a ton of different characters, um, a lot of like subplots and relationships, um, and just like the fact that it's teeming with this detail, it gives it a kind of epic, um, like uh, feel. Um, but at the same time, it is so like so much of the subject matter. Is just feels so intimate and is concerning like all of these intimate details of people's lives and um, the like minutia of day to day life and uh, people relating to one another that 
I think you never lose, like, I mean, there's a couple scenes that <laughs> maybe we'll talk about where um, things take on a more, like, obviously epic uh, feel, but you never really lose that, like, that sense of intimacy. And I think that is a uh, a really fascinating thing that, um, at least for me, like, really kept me uh, engaged. I don't know how you... How you how you felt about the movie aside from your star rating? <laughs> um, yeah, this is one of those things where like so you have like notes where there's like lots of different ways that we can we can talk about this movie, mm-hmm. um, and like this also we had that whole conversation about Fiona Apple, and I feel like it was also like emblematic of what's become both of our approaches <laughs> to. Yeah. Uh, ghost divers which is that you like really deeply read the text and write out a bunch of stuff and i kind of just trust that you are going to be doing that side of it and that i can be the one who will like respond and have the conversation and that i think the podcast is best when you are like doing this approach where you are trying to do this very deep reading and i uh appreciate the work that you you do with that and then i'm like on the other side being like okay i know like my experiential like here here's just like what i got from this um in this way that like i would rather have connor start breaking <laughs> down what he's seeing in this and then respond to it all right fuck yeah let's do it <laughs> um but so the, the other part that i just want to put at the forefront though is that like the reason why this has a five star is that it's like just a incredibly fucking beautiful movie yeah um Every shot, I mean, I talked about this on Ornate Stairwells because I rated the stairwells in this movie <laughs> on that podcast. Uh, it's my favorite dumb bit that we do for that podcast is we rate stairwells. That's awesome. That is a, <laughs> um, that is a, a, the... <laughs> a, a rating methodology that I agree with. Yeah. Um, this movie, by the way, got an A uh, for the stairwells. Tremendous. Um, incredible fucking stairs in this movie. Um, and some of them are like fairly well used. Like there's a stairwell that is like, to me a turning point of this movie involves them going downstairs like the the two the main boy and main girl going downstairs and then and often our reading of stairs is like when you go down it you are like going into the tragedy of your lives like going upstairs is like when you have to contemplate the tragedy that is like before you and then going down the stairs is like the tragedy is like beginning um and you are like starting to enter the consequences of it um this is like our general reading of stairs in movies. Yeah, very good. <laughs> it doesn't always apply. There's but, also another another um, stairs scene. I know you're going to talk about a different one, but there's also a, another central stairs scene where two people walk down a flight of stairs and then only one of them walks back up it. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, and so like both of them go down into like the little like ice cream social kind of style like territory of one of the gangs, and it's just like the the two you know, the main boy and the main girl. Um, and they like hold hands across the table. And it like, it's like really the last time in the entire movie that, uh, either of them are happy because, um, uh, Oh God, what's his name? Like honey. Yeah. Yeah. Honey. Yeah. (laughs) Um, she was about to enter. Yeah. (laughs) Is about to enter. Um, and, is also going to die and is going to like affect the relationship between these two characters in such a way that is like, like 
Honey appearing sets them towards the like final tragedy of this movie in a way. Um, and so that is like for me, like this it's it's set in the center of the film, but it is like this like climactic turning point <laughs> for the film going into like pure tragedy as it continues. Um, and so it's just an amazing scene. So that's why I got an A. <laughs> Yeah, and uh, uh, even though it was not my favorite stairs in the entire movie, uh, there are definitely better like looking stairs. Um, but yeah, this movie is just beautiful. Um, the the other thought that I have here that I'll say before I like turn things over more to you is uh, this is kind of going into some of the stuff that I think you might be talking about. But like, I think so. Rebels of the Neon God it comes out a year later and is set in like contemporary Taipei Mm. um, in Taiwan. And it is specifically like that movie. One is just like fairly short, but like very powerful Um, is definitely gayer than this movie. Um, I'll say that (laughs) Uh, there are like some very heavy gay overtones that of course, like, I loved and latched onto. Um, but for me, a lot of that movie is about creating and emphasizing and, um, like through the erotics of cinema, like creating this aesthetic experience of the like dislocation and displacement and like dissociation of like the, these poor kids who are like, in this changing Taipei and are like kind of without like any clear sense of like identity or um, home or like space, like everything is like in flux in this way Mm -hmm. that is like uh, given them like this, like they are adrift. Um, And that is like very much, and that the movie creates it by um, often confusing the filmic space in ways where like, like a lot of it is set in hotel rooms in such a way that they can cut between scenes. Um, and they can also cut between like, if you're looking at this hotel room from this angle, if you're looking at the hotel room from this other angle, it looks like it totally different spaces. And then, but then also looks identical to another hotel room in the same hotel. And so then we can also have people in different rooms, but at times confusing, are they in the same space? What person are we even looking at? Like everything becomes like, and then also being hotel rooms is like disjointing you from um, like a sense of home because a hotel is always like a temporary place that you sleep. It is not a home. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it is like very visually constructing this sense of like uh, disconnection and like displacement. I think that this, I my read and like my main impression when I came out of a brighter summer day was that it is also very much like the, 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 I, the title card at the very beginning is like, you know, these youth like were like displaced and like did not have the sense. And like, yep. in order to seek identity, they joined these like bike gangs. Yes. And this is like more of a period piece, but is I think also very much concerned with like that modern dissociation from like um, identity and like, uh, detachment from the past and all these things that like this film, both of these films are dealing with it. And I think, uh, despite also being incredibly like beautiful 
and like visually stunning. I think a brighter summer day is doing it less through just like direct, um, like construction of filmic space and like images and is like also doing it more through narrative. Um, and one of the things that really stood out to me is the way that like the length of this film, I think is important Mm, because, uh, it creates this like also sense of like meandering, uh, adrift, like meaninglessness at times that is, I think important. Like there are often just like long shots of just like, uh, both long shots and then also long takes long shots in terms of like from far away. And then also long takes in terms of like the film just continues to roll. That is just like kind of people occupying spaces and like not really having, um, like, yeah, you, just you really them feel kind like of you're like, living in this place and like time is passing. Yeah. Yeah. And, and time is passing and that like time is often passing without like a clear, like goal or like intention for like, what is supposed to be happening. It's kind of just people existing. And that is also happening with something that I think happens in rebels of the neon God as well, which rebels of the neon God, I think is taking these like poor people and these like rundown, like a big part of rebels of the neon God is that it is also Taipei that is like under construction, that things are like deteriorating because no one is going to pour money into fixing up a building that is about to, be like torn down and just like turned into a new high rise or whatever um because it's like a taipei that is also rapidly like modernizing in a sense um but it is like filming these spaces that like often look dirty and poor and run down but like giving it love and attention in the same way that like this movie i think is also taking like the lives of these like poor kids in street gangs and treating them with like the same like this is a crime epic narrative of like the mob bosses that would be in like a godfather or something yeah right yeah (laughs) um and so like i can see how like both of these movies happening um one year after the other are like engaged in very similar themes and yet like approaching them in different ways that was it was what was most exciting for me about it it was like seeing how these two films rebels of the neon god a movie that i've like loved for a little while now and then watching this for the first time and being like oh these are in conversation and are like talking about things in different ways but are like talking about a similar problem um that like new taiwanese cinema might as a whole also be engaged with and so that's also as like man we just need to watch a bunch of new taiwanese cinema on <laughs> on ornate stairwells yeah um, um i think it's really funny that this um because i didn't really put two and two together that uh you had like done rebels of the young god and that it was released like you know in in that proximity to a brighter summer day um when i was choosing this um I actually just like watched this movie completely randomly. Um, and, and then I chose it and then it's, you know, kind of ended up being, well, by the time I was choosing, like all this stuff I said earlier about wanting to like doing, do an homage to when eight stairwells, that's all true. Um, but I just didn't make that explicit connection to rebels of the neon God. Um, so it's really funny that it turned out that way. Um, yeah, Rebels of the Iron God, by the way, I think is still might be our favorite movie that we've watched for the podcast. Um, it's just incredible. I, I'll have to check it out. I don't know if you've out. seen it, but I highly recommend it. I have it. not, but 
I'm 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 very uh enticed by uh the school of cinema now. So um who knows what, what might happen. Um but yeah, so um so the actual reason why I ended up watching this movie is because I was randomly reading about some uh about Taiwanese history and I somehow ended up on this film. Um doing it in that order is was pretty good because um I think the first like note I had is that the film is just engaging with Taiwanese history, specifically like Taiwan in this, you know, early sixties timeframe, um, in a way that is reflected in the actual form of the film. And, and that gives us a sense of like, or, and that, um, kind of creates the, the, some of the meaning of this film. So, and, you know, again, I'm not an expert on Taiwanese history, but um, anyone out there who is, you know, um, write in the question bucket next time and, uh, you know, fill in the blanks. Um, but um, so that to like slightly interject to you, this is one thing that I found was really interesting because I think um, this movie and Rebels of the Neon God were both like engaged with very similar themes. And yet Rebels of the Neon God is very much a movie about like the complete detachment from history that like people have. Um, whereas this is like more concerned with history, but is still um, like engaging with similar themes. And I, that was one of the like contrasts that I found most interesting. Yeah. And um, so you said uh, Rebels of the Young God is like, it's set in like nineties Taipei, right? Yeah. Okay. So that makes sense. So, um, in like, so in Taiwanese history, like at, at this point in time, so um, obviously Taiwan was like ruled by uh, Japan for a number of years that comes up in, in the film. Um, it was colonized by like the um, nationalist Chinese government fleeing like, you know, the end of the Chinese Civil War. Um, the nationalist Chinese government then like erected uh, a regime in Taiwan that um, was itself like uh, uh v- like very oppressive um the the kmt um and was backed by the united states for uh a heavily backed for a period of time uh including like during this period that the film is set in for a long time the kmt so not only was it oppressive um i think it was only it, it only began to like become democratized and like dismantle this uh you know autocratic like apparatus in the the mid to late 80s 90s time frame um so it, it this like quote this white terror period lasted for uh, several decades um and uh a brighter summer day is set like pretty much in the heart of this period uh for a long time the kmt formally maintained that um it its goal was to uh reconquer uh mainland china and return to china um this was a central like pillar of uh the party and as a result it was a like defining feature of taiwanese politics um and uh, of course like with time as the years passed uh it became more and more apparent that this was not <laughs> going to happen um so there's a whole struggle with um you know 
there's different phases of Taiwanese history where the where the KMT like has different degrees of like maintaining this uh you know this quote this goal um or publicly formally maintain this goal but so the reason I'm saying all of this is because in this film um it's really centered on a one of the main points of contention is this generational divide uh, between the like children that we see and then the adults that we see or basically the the parents of the children and they're differing uh worldviews um so one of the point one of the main tensions in the film is that um the adults being like part of this initial flight to taiwan are aligned with this revanchist like ideal uh of a return to china um kind of a core figure for this is uh the main character's father who's like a government official um it's hinted that he was uh, heavily involved with like the KMT government before they lost the civil war um so he's he's very directly at the start of the film um very directly linked with um the government and we see him uh in early scenes listening on the radio um to news about the United States and um it's clear that he's you know hoping that the United States is going to like topple assist in toppling the um you know the communist chinese government and like you know facilitate this return um this happens like very early on um so the link is made right away that you know you have this generation whose worldview is who is struggling with reconciling like this ideological and emotional investment in returning to China, um, this loss of their life, um, of all of their connections. There's a party scene where like this is dwelled on at length, where people are talking about like um all of these exiles are talking about what they've lost, um, family possessions, like um all these things. For them, Taiwan is a a prison or um it in exile uh quite literally in exile um that is uh at least in some part of themselves they're trying to perceive as temporary um but which is really (laughs) becoming apparent is not temporary um and the like attendant anxiety of this is manifesting in the film in, in different ways um and on the other hand you have the children who either uh, were too young or were born in Taiwan, and for whom are Taiwan is the only world that they know, um, who didn't experience this exile and didn't have this prior life in China, and yet their their parents' lives and the society around them is so defined by this revanchism, um, by these old ideals that are linked to uh, a way of life and structures that no longer exist. So you have uh, the film is clearly very concerned with a kind of um, with respect to the children with a kind of breakdown of social order. Um, but it's not just this kind of like finger wagging, like, Oh, it's so bad that the children are out of control because the social order is breaking down. Um, it's kind of revealing how the internal contradictions in this social order are causing it to collapse under its own weight. The, you know, one generation is dealing with this in one way, not very well. 
<laughs> and then the children are left with like nothing, no vision for the future, um, no like order uh, and no direction. Um, so, but only this kind of decayed old, uh, this decaying husk of these old ideals, um, and then this escapist dream of another life somewhere else. Um, there, uh, another theme that emerges is this idea of running away, um, where it it's evoked with honey, uh, this idea of like, oh, honey ran away, um, and honey is gone for a long period of time, uh, pretty much the entire first half of the film. <laughs> and then uh, you're like, oh, yeah, honey like ran away, blah, blah. Um, and then he comes back, and it's, you know, then he dies shortly thereafter. Spoiler alert. Um, well, you already did the spoiler, so it's a big deal. Um, but this escapism is constantly met with, like, uh, a denial um, of, of this escapism, showing how it's, you know, uh, not viable. So there's a kind of struggle. There, there's a um, These two generations are, are struggling with this in relation to each other um, and then in these different ways. Um, this manifests literally in the film and this is what I think is probably the more interesting part of this, in the fact that the film is kind of defined by two narratives that are different styles of narratives. Uh, we have the kind of like, you know, juvenile delinquent gang criminal like crime epic um, that's centered on the children and, um, you know, this kind of like all the ins and outs of this gang war, basically. Uh, and then you have these, like, family, uh, this panoply of family dramas where, you know, you have the main character's family drama, but you also have Ming, the, the main girl, Ming's family. Um, you see all of these kind of all um, aggregate into this kind of, like, er narrative of, like, you know... Um, uh, domestic family, you know, drama type of thing. Um, and then by the same token, like the space of the film is, so not only are, is the narrative of the film like bifurcated because of this divide that it's like trying, you know, dealing with and uh, expressing, but also like the visual space of the film is, um, I don't know if bifurcated is the right word, but it is simultaneously like Taipei feels extremely expansive. And at the same time, it feels extremely claustrophobic. And you see like, again, there's four hours and like you were alluding to, there's so many shots of just Taipei um, surrounding landscapes, like the buildings, different areas. Um, and you have this whole panorama of Taipei what you're meandering around in and you're like, wow, this really feels like expansive and you get a sense of the, you know, uh, the width of the space. And at the same time, it just feels incredibly claustrophobic because, um, have you ever played like Dragon Age 2? The only Dragon Age I've played is Inquisition. Okay. Sorry, random question. But the reason I bring it up is because like, Dragon Age 2 has, it has like 10 different levels, maybe not even 10. There's like, there's like between five and 10 like areas 
that they created for the game. And like every mission is just like in one of these like seven areas. And so you're just returning to the same area over and over again. And they're just pretending like it's like a different area or something, but it's the exact same map. It's just like different enemies and shit are there. And it's really, really bizarre. Um, I, I, I didn't even finish playing the game because it just like galled me so much. But this film does the exact same thing where it's like constantly returning to these same areas in a way that like while it is presenting all of this space, like you find yourself um, just coming back and to the same spaces over and over again. And again, I think this yeah. is like um, it, it's, it's almost uh, literalizing like the worldviews um, this bifurcation in worldviews um, between the older generation for whom like Taiwan is this prison that they're like struggling to escape um, or, you know, struggling to cope with. Um, and then for the children, conversely, like, I mean, A, they're children, so the world seems larger to them. So there's that aspect. Um, but for whom there are no like limits uh, on like, there's no structure in their lives. There's no order. So there are no limits. Um, so the world is like this incredibly expansive, uh, you, you know, um, chaotic place. Um, and uh, yeah. Um, so I, I thought just um, for my like, you know, nice little historicist reading there, um, the like history that it's dealing with is emerging like formally in all of these like really interesting ways yeah like going to some of the the space too like there there is a like we like continue to get the same like establishing shots as well of places um in a way that like i feel like is less common in cats are being wild um (laughs) is like less common in film i think in the way that like this is an epic is like returning to spaces more often um and that like people might more associate with like sitcoms which like often cycle through Mm -hmm. um like the same spaces like there there's just a lot of like here's the shot of like the home where this person lives and it's often like there will be signs of like it being a different day or something but also it is like the same space and is often like shot from the same angle. Like it is the same like shot of the building. And so there's a lot of like returning to the, those like spaces again and again, as you were saying. And I think there's also a certain amount of there's like returning to like a character who's just like a bit character in the story who might like, once again, people just run into you know the drunkard or whatever the, the guy who sells um, in this way that like street. yeah 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 um and sometimes like in different locations and sometimes not but like there's like this like weird like i think that is also contributing to you know there this film is creating a filmic space and a thing that i in a way that i think is different than like rebels of the neon god but that it is also still like Space feels less immediately dislocated in A Brighter Summer Day than it does 
in Rebels of the Neon God. And I'm, I'm like reaching this as a comparison because I, they are, are again, I think like dealing with very similar um, themes and like topics and um, fixations that like make sense being two directors who are like part of a similar you know film movement yeah. that's happening in a country that's going through uh like a decolonization process at the time that these films are being made um in some ways like a brighter summer day feels more like rebels of the neon god feels like it is breaking more from like cinematic conventions whereas it feels like a brighter summer day is like is doing establishing shots in a way that um rebels of the neon god often doesn't but it is still like employing those techniques in a way that is like pointing at something else beyond just like the filmic form of like, Oh, here's the establishing shot. Here's the scene. Blah, here's blah, blah. best practices. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, it is instead like, like for me, part of what becomes like dissociating or um, like unbound or, um is reaching at this like a drift or meaninglessness in a brighter summer day is the way that like things often kind of feel cyclical in this way that like a lot of life is kind of just moving between the same spaces mm-hmm. like you yeah i remember when i first moved to chicago um a friend of mine who grew up in like small town in the south and then like went to northern michigan university which is not that large either um was like what's your castlevania map of chicago like because you know like in like a castlevania game like there's the map and it'll give you the percentage of how much you've explored Uh like what's your percentage at and i've been living here for like a few years at this point and i was like i don't know like two percent and you know and he was like that's so low and i was like it's a really fucking huge thing. <laughs> yeah. And one, it just takes time to explore it. But also most of your life is going between home, work, and like the few neighborhoods that you know of that have like things that you want to go. Mm-hmm. Like I will like go to this neighborhood because there's a cool comic book shop. And I'm mostly going for that comic book shop that I know that's there. And I'll explore a couple of the streets, but I'm not like wandering all of the streets of Chicago all the time. <laughs> yeah. Um, and... I'm going to like do a slight tangent, but like this was one of my favorite things about um, Persona 5 in particular, like Persona 5 compared to, I think some of the other Persona games is like very clearly trying to evoke, like, like it is set in Japan and, or in Tokyo in Japan um, and is like constructing with to some degree, like lavish detail, like the street that you live on as the main character in persona five is a real street in Tokyo that you can go to. And like, obviously they, they fictionalized and changed some of it. And yet like the coffee shop that you live above is a coffee shop that it, like the one in the game, yeah, it's like, Ulysses. Uh, has coffee and curry. And then across the street is like, you walk like through a small alleyway and there's a hot spring or there's like a, a bathhouse and a laundromat and like the electronic store. It's a like fictionalized electronic store, but it's in the same space. They're like creating this in such a way. Um, and so on one hand, like there's this like lavish creation of like 
individual spaces of Tokyo. And yet Tokyo is a huge city. And one of the first things that you have to do in the game is figure out the train lines that you're supposed to take to get to school. (laughs) And it's like literally like the game forces you to look at the signage that exists in the subway itself to be like, oh, that's saying like the station that I want to go to is that station. And here's the sign telling me like I have to walk down like this hallway to get to that transfer (laughs) point or whatever. Um, And you have to do that the first time. And then pretty soon after the game no longer requires you to do that and lets you fast travel in a way that like at a certain point you stop thinking about I know how to like do the transfer because like you're in this autopilot mode. Um, But that you are still moving between like, here are these main spots that I go to all the time. Like here's the shopping district that I like to go to because it has lots of like game stuff and you can like explore multiple, you know, like stores there and things. And like, you can go like down a couple different streets, like they'll like recreate that. And then it's like, or you can go to where the Ferris wheel is and like literally it's just like a cut scene because you're going on a date with someone and it like in this like way creates the sense of like what it means for me to living in Chicago is there is a lot of like I'm moving between these spaces that I go to a lot and that I like I know lots of shops or restaurants or something on the street because I go there frequently and then here's the area where like yeah I go to Navy Pier but like not often and mostly i'm just going to like the imax or like maybe this one other place or something right yeah. like and like and you're not you're not necessarily really going successfully out to like the remote regions of like Irving park or whatever you yeah know, just um, like and i'm not like... often just wandering down random alleyways or side streets or whatever yeah. um until maybe i like i know someone there and so like as a game, it like really successfully creates this experience of like living in a city and how you actually engage with cities as like largely engaging with a limited space because you just like, and you might sometimes explore, but often those exploring, like, especially within your like longer understanding is like, Oh yeah. I remember I took that stop once to like go to this one bar I have, like, no other sense of that stuff. Uh-huh. I remember I took that stop and I went to a bar because I was meeting someone there or whatever, like, right? Yeah. Um, and this movie, like, also feels like it is creating this way that, like, you exist in a space and yet, like, your experience of it becomes so, like, limited to the the rhythms of, like, your everyday life um, in a way that is, like, not necessarily bad, but it is, like, a thing that, like, in some ways disconnects you from, like, a larger space. Um which I went on a very like large tangent <laughs> there, but I think like <laughs> it it is tying into a way that I think this film is using these establishing shots to like recreate a a way that people often engage with spaces, especially like a city that um often does end up for you as the person living there become reduced down to like specific spaces within it, like specific buildings and specific streets um rather than like the fullness of a a city because like to some degree like the human brain cannot like contain the entire entirety of a city yeah (laughs) right yeah like you just like can't actually have that entire uh space in your brain as like a complete map and that i think like then ties into this like again like 
I also don't know if bifurcated is the correct word, but this like weird like disconnecting and um this like distending. Like um like it's like it's yeah, it's like emphasizing a certain alienation that exists yeah. as well, I think. Yeah. Um, um absolutely. Um and I think there's just like two more uh points I really wanted to touch on. Um and I'll I'll try and run through them pretty quick. Um just because I think, you know, I just want to bring out some of the things that I found interesting about the film. And then if anyone's watching along, um, you know, uh, hopefully, uh, hopefully it's stuff that, that you engage with, um, or that you find compelling. Um, so the other thing, um, I kind of spoke a little bit about like the history that this is dealing with. Um, this also manifests in just like a core theme of like violence, which is, pretty much rendered through this uh through gang violence and state violence um and and then also gendered violence as well but uh throughout the film there is a uh constant a constant presence of this like oppressive military regime um you know they go to a, a military school um so, it, you know, in the first instance, like, you know, the children go to a military school, but more generally, like, it, at first, this regime is just kind of part of the landscape. It's often relegated to the background. Um, so you'll see, like, uh, the main character and the main girl will be walking down the road and, like, just a bunch of, like, APCs will just drive by, like a military convoy. Um yeah. There's uh, a few scenes where it's like an interior um, where something is happening. Someone's having a conversation. Um, And then in the background, um, there's an open door and you see like on the street behind um, soldiers go like rushing by. And it's again, you know, it's just like this kind of looming threat lurking in the background, but then conveying a kind of the omnipresence of, of this regime and of this, um, this threat of, of violence, at least. Um, you also have, like, um, the main character and the main girl go to, like, a training ground at a certain point, um, and where the military is doing, tar- like, uh, range shooting, and uh, it is a kind of... There's a foreshadowing moment a little bit um, where the, the idea of them, be, like of the main boy being shot is broached um, as like a joke. Um, but again, you know, that vi- like the potential for this violence is, um, is, is constantly looming, looming and it's constantly present. Um, and then at the same time you have the gang violence, like of the children. Um, so the gang violence narrative takes precedence. Uh, I would say throughout like the, first part of the film it's it takes uh focal precedence but there's a key turning point in the middle of the film where um a few things happen um honey is killed um you already alluded to the significance of this so i won't go too deep into it uh, but it's worth noting he's run over by a military uh, like a tank or an apc but he is pushed in front of it by the like his gang rival so it's a kind of collision of this gang yeah. violence and um, 
this like state violence. Um, then in revenge uh, for this, um, the like Honey's gang goes to the rival gang's uh, hideout and basically massacres them um, with weapons that they have gotten from Ma, who is um, one of the children, but who is the son of a general in the in this military regime. We see later that he keeps weapons like all around his house. Um, they're extremely rich, and uh, he basically supplies them <laughs> with these weapons. Um, so again, we see this direct linkage between the state violence and the gang violence. Um, and then uh, once, almost immediately after um, this kind of like climactic eruption of uh, the gang of gang violence in this. Uh, gang violence narrative, we have this shocking eruption of state violence where the main character's father, um, who again is like seen to be this devoted, uh, helpless, you know, government worker, is just uh, like taken from his home <laughs> randomly um, by the secret police. And we have extended sequences of him being like interrogated essentially tortured and it's never uh it, it all in this kind of like horrifying vague um ca- almost kafka-esque like you know uh atmosphere and uh sequencing where it's not really stated what they're looking for from him we don't know why uh he's being questioned it just kind of happens out of the blue and there's just a like a senselessness and arbitrariness to this violence that is um, extremely shocking. And especially since, you know, we haven't really, um, it just kind of emerges uh, suddenly in in the middle of the film. Um, So all these three points are kind of like major nodes in the film that all cluster in the center and are all kind of linked to each other um, and, and almost divide the film into two halves. And I think one of the things that's happening is, um, there is a way um, the film is conveying a, this kind of parasitic or conjoined relation between this oppressive regime and then like the violence that is engendered as a result um, in, in this kind of different uh, realm and not directly by the regime itself, but in, in ways that are um, directly like uh, pulling from it and emerging from like this overall atmosphere of state oppression. Um, so it's, it's kind of dealing with this whole, um, this whole uh, like universe or this whole atmosphere of violence um, and, and the ways that the violence is being um, perpetuated by the state and uh, trickling down through the society. And then uh, lastly, um, I think um, there's a whole many essays that could be written about like the presence of American culture in this film. Um, it's named after a lyric of an Elvis song. Um, this is a central plot point as well. Um, uh, it's the world that we see is inundated with American um, cultural content, which is a reflection of like you know, the way that um, the U.S. and the Taiwanese government 
intentionally introduced American culture to Taiwan as an ideological proposition at the time. Um, So there's a whole, uh, many things that could be said about that. But the point that I just want to make that I think is interesting is how um, the film is dealing with Taiwan's legacy, the legacy of of the actual, um, you know, land itself as a place where all of these historical, um, all this historical violence and cultural collisions have occurred. Um, so you have, you know, native Taiwanese, uh, Chinese, Japanese, American, uh, signs of these cultures are emerging, um, left and right, um, in ways that are, um, you know, uh, again, could, could be analyzed if, if we, uh, had more time and the inclination to do so. But, uh, there's a way that the film just shows, um, in, uh, it through this kind of rich detail where it dwells on these quotidian, in these quotidian spaces and on these quotidian tasks, it also shows how these legacies of historical violence, um, you know, of the erasure, uh, the colon, like the colonization of Taiwan, the erasure of, uh, native Chinese, uh, Taiwanese, you know, American cultural imperialism, uh, Japanese, Chinese uh, history um, are all sedimented. Um, all of these legacies of violence become sedimented in the lives that we live um, in the objects that like surround us and just kind of uh, not only do they form our world um, and exert influence, but they also kind of uh, in, in this film, they emerge through this kind of archaeology of quotidian life where the boys are just going through their, like, you know, their house is a house that was, uh, the main character's house was a, is a Japanese house um, that was lived in by Japanese people. Um, there's uh, objects and possessions that those people left behind that when they're just kind of going through their the house, they find, like, a picture of this Japanese woman who lived in the house once, presumably. And, uh, again, they're just kind of boys being boys going through, like, um, the house. I think they're actually looking for weapons, <laughs> um, because, it, you know, again, to make the point, to put an even, uh, finer edge on the point, like, they're literally looking for old Japanese weapons in the house. And, um, you know, they're, they're finding all of these objects. So, uh, yeah, that's another, um, cool aspect of the film that um uh, you know people probably have and could write books and essays about um and uh, go into great length on but uh, if you're watching at home uh, maybe that's an interesting thing to uh look out for yeah and uh, uh yeah so we've surpassed four hours um <laughs> i don't know it probably won't Good fucking movie. Yeah, great, great fucking movie. No reservation on on saying that. So yeah, I don't know. Do you have any more comments on uh, Brighter Summer Day, or do you want to wrap this up? Um, yeah, I think I'm done. We don't we don't have any more emails, right? Um, I was just about to take a look and make sure we didn't miss anything. Um, yeah. Oh, um. I think actually, did we 
Do we do the Autumn's email? Um, did Autumn send an email? Let me. Uh, okay. Autumn emailed, and there, there's no body. It's just the title, Neon, at capital N I A N, Genesis Evangelion. So anyway, oh, we're sh- gonna be. <laughs> Magic Knight Ray Earth next, um, joined by Autumn for the entirety of it. Um, so when you're listening to this, the intro to Magic Knight Ray Earth is also in the feed. My cats are trying to break in again. <laughs> I think what you mean to anyway, say we are... is that Autozam is invading. <laughs> sure. <laughs> we're, we're doing Magic Knight Ray Earth next. Um, it's probably my favorite anime. I love it a lot. Um... I say this also being like Ghost in the Shell Standalone Complex is my favorite anime, but Ghost in the Shell Standalone Complex is my favorite anime when I'm like trying to seem cool and intellectual. <laughs> uh, Magic Knight Ray Earth is my favorite anime when I am thinking about anime and uh, picking like images to be profile pictures and things. <laughs> very, very, uh, um, very different categories there. Yeah. I fucking love Ray Earth so much, though. I'm really excited for this. Um it's been fun so far. Oh yeah. Um, if people want to write into future question buckets, you can write into ghostdiverspod at gmail dot com. Feel free to also write in about like anime that we've already done a question bucket for. It's fine. Like I'm sure we're happy to talk about something again. Yeah, um, we know people we may not are... remember it as clearly, but <laughs> we know people are watching uh, or listening to our episodes and watching these anime in, in different orders. So yeah, just, yeah. So um, we'll take all questions here. Everyone just really loves our Cromartie high school episodes. Uh, you know, just like the pinnacle, everyone's talking about them. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. They're just, so they were trending. Those were fun episodes. The other day. Yeah. Um, Thank you to the Export Audio Network. People can go to exportaud.io to support the network. Um, if you do that, you will get access to episodes of Ornate Stairwells. Uh, like, so it releases on Tuesday, and it's like an episode will go out the Tuesday after Autumn edits it. Um, we usually record it Thursdays, but that might like change a little bit, um, just depending on our availability. Otherwise, you can go to exportaudio slash ornate stairwells, and that will get you to the public feed. Um, like, I think if you just plug that in, actually, as like the RSS thing, it should work for like whatever your your um, podcatcher app or whatever the fuck people call it. Uh, but that's the public feed, and so like stuff comes out on the Patreon only feed, and then the next week comes to the public feed, so you get you get episodes early. Um, there are lots of other stuff in the network. Check out lots of other podcasts, but I'm specifically promoting ornate stairwells, my podcast for this one. So, um, deal with it. It's a good fucking podcast. I like ornate stairwells. (laughs) Uh, I, it's a, it's a lot less prep than this one. Mm -hmm. Um, I care a lot about ghost divers and editing it and everything. Uh, it's very nice to have another podcast where I literally just roll up, watch a movie, and talk about it, and then I'm done. Yeah, that's pretty nice. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, I, I don't know if I could, people... I could probably never do that. 
I, I don't know if my uh, if my anxiety would would allow me to do that ever. But um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that sounds great. Um, once I started doing ornate stairwells, my editing of Ghost Divers got a lot faster because I just like Autumn's approach to editing stuff is literally throwing some uh like something at the start of the episode for episodes of Ornate Stairwells throwing the same Bella Lugosi's Dead track at the end. And I swear to god these cats are being the worst tonight. Yeah. Um Yeah, just throwing some cat noises in there and then you're basically good to get. Yeah. Anyway, um I mean whenever Autumn's talking there's cat noises. <laughs> uh anyway they identify as a small cat. Whatever. Um, <laughs> neon that's neon not like a, that's, uh, Yeah, that's not even a dig at them. Anyway. Um, yeah, and just like puts Bella Gosey's dead at the end and releases it. And uh, having that little editing on your you talking just and people still saying it's a good podcast just really builds up your your confidence where you don't care as much about like trying to get all the little pauses in the way that I was in earlier ghost divers. So um, anyway, this is a tangent mm. uh, export odd.io slash ghost divers. If you want to share the RSS link for this podcast that you're currently listening to, you can follow us at ghost divers pod on Twitter. You can follow me at Fox mom, Nia, where can people follow you for all of your good, good tweets. You're just doing a bunch of these uh, like Zodiac sign. Um, yeah. Y'all can follow me at Ravelies. <laughs> R-A-B-B-L-E-A-I-S. Cats are being so obnoxious. Speaking of cats. Um, you can also follow me at, at Garf Read Aloud, uh, where I read Garfield Aloud into a camera, which I haven't done yet. I might do that before I go to bed. But yeah, speaking of cats, Magic Knight Ringer. <laughs> Bye, everyone. <laughs> Goodbye, everyone. See you next time. Kissed you and called you sweetheart. Do the chairs in your parlor seem empty and bare? Do you gaze at your doorstep and picture me there? Is your heart? Filled with pain Shall I come back again Tell me dear Are you lonesome tonight I wonder if You're lonesome tonight You know someone said The world's a stage And each must play a part Fate had me playing in love with you as my sweetheart. Act one was where we met. I loved you at first glance. You read your lines so cleverly and never missed a cue. 
then came act two. You seemed to change, you acted strange, and why I've never known. Honey, you lied when you said you loved me, and I had no cause to doubt you. But I'd rather go on hearing your lies than to go on living without you. Now the stage is bare, and I'm standing there with emptiness all around. And if you won't come back to me, then they can bring the curtain down. Is your heart filled with pain? Shall I come back again? Tell me, dear. Are you lonesome tonight? <laughs> okay. I'm very tired. Also, I've had four beers. I drank all of the beers. <laughs> Good night. I'm going to stop recording. Okay. Like, introduce me. Like, hello and welcome to Ghost Divers. Um, I, I guess. I'm the host. <laughs> well, we are, but like, of the two co-hosts, I'm the podcast top and you're the podcast bottom. I'm just, I'm just surprised that you're switching things up here. Um... Because, like, Ornate Stairwell's Autumn House, um, although I'm a lot brattier on that one, even more so than with you, and so uh, I've been known to try and take over that podcast more, but... <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, I, I have a bunch of Kieran Ichiban in here again. I don't have a full six-pack, because... Um, I was just drinking through Kieran Ichiban as we were doing Evangelion, but I did sa- save four cans, and I have all four in here. Um, nice. I have three of them on ice, um, just to like keep them cooler. I don't know if I'll drink all of them, but that last one we is joked just about so drunk me doing it. Care about temperature? Yeah, <laughs> we we joked about me doing a full six pack for the um, question bucket, and so I feel like this is close. <laughs> That's pretty close, yeah. I was yeah. actually gonna. I, I really wanted to just like straight up um, order like Yabisu and have it sent to my house from like fucking Japan or whatever. Um, yeah. You know, fucking Japan. Um, I feel like there's got to be some place that like imports it normally. Yeah, it's kind of weird you know? to navigate that. If you just Google like, where can I order <laughs> Yabisu? It's. I remember it being more like. It probably isn't that hard, but it was more difficult than I expected to the degree that I gave up. Yeah. And then I just forgot about it. I mean, a lot of it just has to do with, like, if there's an importer for it already and, like, their scope. <clears throat> yeah. Know? Yeah. Um, like, if they're... Because I'm not just going to fucking... I think it is um, Sapporo who makes it, who owns the brand. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. They're just, uh, like, not gonna just fucking send me a six-pack. <laughs> yeah. Japan. So, um, yeah. One thing, so I have the housekeeping for the intro to Ray Earth here, mm-hmm. but we could actually do this... Um, Oh, I actually don't need to do this part because I think I already did it. Um, yeah, we could do it right now or we could do it this weekend. I, I put it in here because at first I didn't know if we were going to be recording this weekend or not. But um, Yeah, I think it's fine I, if we just if we do it now. Let's do like a little okay. warm up. Yeah. Um, let's do time that is first. Oh, yeah. Got what time. Hold on. I haven't done editing editing since the last time we recorded, but that's fine. I had to turn my VPN off. I I realized my VPN was on because it's an hour behind. <laughs> um, I was yeah, my location was in Hill, Hillsdale, Illinois. Oh, um, nice. Yeah, no idea where that is. Um, I like have a vague sense of it being probably like not in a Chicago. bit of a suburb oh in, yeah in Chicago yeah but like probably not that cl- let me actually look I'm, I'm just curious now oh it's yeah, this, is a, this is a small town yeah I just feel like I I had heard the name before in a way but I'm surprised it's that far out and also in that direction they have two gas stations and a Methodist church. I must have like had a coworker or something who was like, "I'm from Hillsdale." Okay, but I don't yeah, know this why is the like, fuck else I would have heard of this place. Yeah, this is like a ridiculously small town. Yeah, this is like town I grew up in. Small town. Yeah, like a, a literal one horse town. <laughs> yeah, I'm just like googling now Hillsdale population. Yeah, this is like the size of the town I grew up in, I think. 500. Oh, wait. Yeah. Oh, no, wait. That's the Michigan one. We'll say 500. Okay, so that's that's smaller. That's more like um, where Emily grew up. Yeah, that's that's quite small. Um, yeah. <clears throat> it's actually slightly smaller than where Emily grew up, which is, of all the people I know, the smallest town like hometown because she's from michigan as well right yeah okay um how how far is her hometown from yours uh like it can't be that far right because you all went well, to high school together so no we didn't go to high school together um so when i think of my hometown i think of which was a lot smaller um and that was further away but then we moved to michigan which was larger and was like the first time I really encountered rich people um, as like a, a thing, like a person you would go to school with. <laughs> yeah. Um, and that was like a half hour away. But yeah, no, Emily and I never went to the same school at all. Um, I guess I just uh, like bl- blended memories there. Yeah. So a friend, uh, like a mutual, a friend. So someone I went to high school with and was friends with was taking a Japanese course at like a community college or something with Emily. 
Um, okay. That was, I think it was in Kalamazoo, which is kind of like the big city around where both of us were. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they wanted to start a webcomic. I think I've told this on the podcast before. Yeah, the webcomic. Webcomic, yeah, it still exists. Um, It's still on the internet. I'm not going to tell anyone how to find it. Um, But, yeah, and then this friend, who's the only one in the group who knew me, they, like, were looking for additional people who could help draw and work on the comic. Um, And they also decided that they needed a Bishonin. And this friend of mine, who was not publicly within the school broadly, I think, but to me personally, out as gay was like, I know a Bishonin who could help us work on this comic and brought me in. <laughs> Which, in retrospect, probably means that he had a crush on me in a way that, um, at the time, I was I did not think about. It's like, so. this is literally like, uh, I don't know if you've ever seen the show uh, Gekon Shoujo Nozaki-kun. I have not. The, the anime. Um, I, I liked it uh, quite a bit, actually, but it's very similar, where there's just, like, the main character's love interest is this, like, straight guy who writes, like, shoujo manga, yeah. and the, like, their friends all, like, end up getting brought in to, like, work on some part of this manga as the series goes on. Um, or they're like meeting people at the school and then it's like, oh wait, who like, who does your like backgrounds? And then it ends up being that person, but it's like a whole big secret because of like, it's like a comedy. Um, yeah. So that's, that's what that Um, reminds me of. It would be like that if then the Bishonen turned out to be a Bishojo, which could happen. I haven't seen it, but it. (laughs) It doesn't do exactly that, but it it has it has some some stuff like that going on for sure. Okay, well, let's do um, a time that is clap, and then um, do this housekeeping for Ray Earth, and then okay, you can start the podcast after that. Awesome, awesome. Thanks. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna pick the the seconds here if you're gonna be hosting. Oh, um, okay, yeah, that works. I, I like yeah. that. Um, my thing's doing that thing where it like hitches again. Well, we'll do, uh, 12. That's kind of a weak clap, but I think that's okay. You want to do another one? Yeah, sure. Why not? Let you just kind of um, enjoy your, your uh, <laughs> time picking 27. <laughs> Did you manage to get it in time? I think so, yeah. I hit it like right at 27. Okay. It'll be fine. Um, so. Craig, Gjork. Oh, yeah. I need to get Gjork in here. Um, I think I've actually thought about doing. I just need to like actually spend the time to do roll stuff. Is actually setting up things where what I currently have is the Craig channel just becomes the ghost divers channel and then i can give like ghost divers people permission to that channel and also maybe control it so that like if we have a guest that we just only want to be able to see that channel we could do it but oh instead uh, of just having them like in the codices draconum channel 
Yeah, mostly just because I don't want to like annoy people with them being in another server where people are posting stuff that's like completely unrelated to anything they would care about. Yeah, I think they're probably a little befuddled sometimes. Um, yeah, but not. It's probably not that bad. Like I'm looking right now at the um, off topic, and I'm looking at the the video that Autumn posted with absolutely no context when our oh, yeah. during our last recording session. I think yeah. it was our first rear. It's Pikachu. Yeah. Um, I think the the part that was probably the most befuddling is um, when I posted someone putting their hair up, and then Autumn posted someone putting their hair up, and then I posted the <laughs> the link tweet. <laughs> oh yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay, now I'm seeing that part now. Yeah, I feel like that was maybe the <laughs> most befuddling for the other people. Uh, also, just the random yak max. <laughs> uh, Sorry, I had some water go down my windpipe there. <laughs> yeah, and then the the thing about terrorizing Connor, people are probably like, "What? <laughs> what the fuck is happening?" Yeah. All right, I'm gonna do work cited. Um, I think I'm just gonna read the top two because I don't know if I'm actually gonna bring in these Austin Walker ones. Um, especially because I don't know how much I'm going to quote from them. I, I, I think the most that I might is that in both of these, Austin talks about incoherence as a thing that I also think about a lot. Um, but I think they were <coughs> like, both of those talks were things where I had <coughs> like ideas already in my head. And then just being at a talk with Austin Walker, I was just like, Oh, this is just like summarizing some of the stuff or like putting the pieces together in a way that I was already doing, but now like the puzzles complete faster or something. (coughs) Yeah. I mean, so if you, if you end up quoting extensively from it or deciding to include it later, I'm sure that's, you know, fixable. Um, but I just didn't really have a chance to listen through them again. Um, anyway, All right. I'm going to do a quick clap. Not like a time that is one, just for editing. <clears throat> You're hosting this. All right, sweet. <laughs>